welcome to Prose for the Days. Thank you for joining me for the fifth installment of Shirley by Charlotte Bronte. If you're reading along at home today, our episode will encompass chapters 16 through 20. Do you have your tea? Today I have a like fruity kind of blend. I don't I don't remember the name, <laughs> but it's good. Um, let's just dive right back in. Mercenary relief never yet tranquilized the working class. It never made them grateful. It is not in human nature that it should. Chapter 16. Whitsuntide. By dint of Miss Kildar's example, the three rectors' vigorous exertions, and the efficient though quiet aid of their spinster and spectacled lieutenants, Marianne Ainsley and Margaret Hall, a handsome sum was raised, and this being judiciously managed, served the present greatly to alleviate the distress of the unemployed poor. The neighborhood seemed to grow calmer. For a fortnight past, no cloth had been destroyed. No outrage on mill or mansion had been committed in the three parishes. Shirley was sanguine that the evil she wished to avert was almost escaped, that the threatened storm was passing over. With the approach of summer, she felt certain that trade would improve. It always did. And then this weary war could not last forever. Peace must return one day. With peace, what an impulse would be given to commerce. Such was the usual tenor of her observations to her tenant, Gerard Moore, whenever she met him where they could converse. And Moore would listen very quietly, too quietly to satisfy her. She would then, by her impatient glance, demand something more from him, some explanation or at least some additional remark. Smiling in his way, with that expression which gave a remarkable cast of sweetness to his mouth, while his brow remained grave, he would answer to the effect that himself too trusted in the finite nature of the war, that it was indeed on that ground the anchor of his hopes was fixed. Thereon his speculations depended. For you are aware, he would continue, that I now work Paulo's mill entirely on speculation. I sell nothing, there is no market for my goods. I manufacture for a future day. I make myself ready to take advantage of the first opening that shall occur. Three months ago this was impossible to me. I had exhausted both credit and capital. You well know who came to my rescue, from what hand I received the loan which saved me. It is on the strength of that loan I am enabled to continue the bold game which, a while since, the fund prospered. We should feel it were we so placed. Besides, to whom should they be grateful? To you? To the clergy, perhaps? But not to us mill owners. They had us worse than ever. One year, nay, but six months, of the reign of the olive, and I am safe. For, as you say, peace will give an impulse to commerce. In this you are right, but as to the restored tranquility of the neighborhood, as to the permanent good effect of your charitable fund, I doubt. I feared I should never play more. Total ruin, I know, will follow loss, and I am aware that gain is doubtful, but I am quite cheerful. So long as I can be active, so long as I can strive, so long, in short, as my hands are not tied, it is impossible for me to be depressed. I suppose, were all things ordered aright, they ought not to be in a position to need that humiliating relief, and this they feel. Then the disaffected here are in correspondence with the disaffected elsewhere. Nottingham is one of their headquarters, Manchester another, Birmingham a third. The subalterns receive orders from their chiefs. They are in a good state of discipline. No blow is struck without mature deliberation. In sultry weather you have seen the sky threaten thunder day by day, and yet night after night the clouds have cleared and the sun has set quietly. But the danger was not gone. It was only delayed. The long-threatening storm is sure to break at last. There is analogy between the moral and physical atmosphere. Well, Mr. Moore, so these conferences always ended, take care of yourself. If you think that I have ever done you any good, I like better than seraph or cherub glide across remote vistas. Reward me by promising to take care of yourself. I do. I will take close and watchful care. I wish to live, not to die. The future opens like Eden before me. And still, when I look deep into the shades of my paradise, I see a vision. Do you? Pray, what vision? I see. The maid came bustling in with the tea things. The early part of that May, as we have seen, was fine. The middle was wet, but in the last week, a change of moon, it cleared again. A fresh wind swept off the silver-white, deep-piled rain clouds, bearing them, mass on mass, to the eastern horizon, on whose verge they dwindled, and behind whose rim they disappeared, leaving the vault behind all pure blue space, ready for the rain of the summer sun. That sun rose broad on Whitsuntide. The gathering of the schools was signalized by splendid weather. 
Whit Tuesday was the great day in preparation for which the two large schoolrooms of Briarfield, built by the present rector, antique as were the hoary church and rectory, Nunnally's low-roofed temple and mossy parsonage, buried both in coval oaks, outstanding sentinels of Nunwood, chiefly at his own expense, were cleaned out, whitewashed, repainted, and decorated with flowers and evergreens, some from the rectory garden, two cartloads from Fieldhead, and a wheelbarrow full from the more stingy domain of DeWalden, the residence of Mr. Wynne. In these schoolrooms, twenty tables, each calculated to accommodate twenty guests, were laid out, surrounded with benches, and covered with white cloths. Above them were suspended at least some twenty cages, containing as many canaries, according to a fancy of the district, specially cherished by Mr. Hellstone's clerk, who delighted in the piercing song of these birds, and knew that amidst confusion of tongues they always caroled loudest. These tables, be it understood, were not spread for the twelve hundred scholars to be assembled from the three parishes, but only for the patrons and teachers of the schools. The children's feast was to be spread in the open air. At one o'clock the troops were to come in, at two they were to be marshaled, till four they were to parade the parish, then came the feast, and afterwards the meeting, with music and speechifying in the church. Why Briarfield was chosen for the point of rendezvous, the scene of the fete, should be explained. It was not because it was the largest or most populous parish, Winbury far outdid it in that respect, nor because it was the oldest, were older still. It was simply because Mr. Helston willed it so, and Mr. Helston's will was stronger than that of Boltby or Hall. The former could not, the latter would not, dispute a point of precedence with their resolute and imperious brother. They let him lead and rule. This notable anniversary had always hitherto been a trying day to Caroline Hellstone, because it dragged her perforce into public, compelling her to face all that was wealthy, respectable, influential in the neighborhood, in whose presence, but for the kind countenance of Mr. Hall, she would have appeared unsupported. Obliged to be conspicuous, obliged to walk at the head of her regiment as the rector's niece and first teacher of the first class, obliged to make tea at the first table for a mixed multitude of ladies and gentlemen, and to do all this without the countenance of mother, aunt, or other chaperone, she, meantime, being a nervous person who mortally feared felicity, it will be comprehended that, under these circumstances, she trembled at the approach of Whitsuntide. But this year Shirley was to be with her, and that changed the aspect of the trial singularly. It changed it utterly. It was a trial no longer. It was almost an enjoyment. Miss Kildar was better in her single self than a host of ordinary friends. Quite self-possessed, and always spirited and easy, conscious of her social importance, yet never presuming upon it. It would be enough to give one courage only to look at her. The only fear was lest the heiress should not be punctual to tryst. She often had a careless way of lingering behind time, and Caroline knew her uncle would not wait a second for anyone. At the moment of the church clock tolling two, the bells would clash out and the march begin. She must look after Shirley then, in this matter, her new sash, a birthday present from Margaret Hall, which she had reason to believe Cyril himself had bought, and in return for which she had indeed given him a set of cambric bands and a handsome case, was tied by the dexterous fingers of Fanny, who took no little pleasure in arraying her fair young mistress for the occasion, or her expected companion would fail her. Whit Tuesday saw her rise almost with the sun, she, Fanny, and Eliza were busy the whole morning arranging the rectory parlors in first-rate company order and setting out a collation of cooling refreshments—wine, fruit, cakes—on the dining-room sideboard. Then she had to dress in her freshest and fairest attire of white muslin, the perfect fineness of the day and the solemnity of the occasion warranted, and even exacted, such costume. When ready, she formed a picture—not bright enough to dazzle, but fair enough to interest, not brilliantly striking, but very delicately pleasing—a picture in which sweetness of tint, purity of air, and grace of mien atoned for the absence of rich coloring and magnificent contour. What her brown eye and clear forehead showed of her mind was in keeping with her dress and face, modest, gentle, and, though pensive, harmonious. It appeared that neither lamb nor dove need fear her, or with the natures we ascribe to them. After all, she was an imperfect, faulty human being, fair enough of form, hue, and array, but, as Cyril Hall said, neither so good nor so great as the withered Miss Ainley, now putting on her best black gown and Quaker drab shawl and bonnet, but would welcome, rather, in her look of simplicity and softness, a sympathy with their own natures, her simple bonnet had been trimmed to correspond with her sash. Her pretty but inexpensive scarf of white crepe suited her dress, in her own narrow cottage chamber. Away Caroline went, across some very sequestered fields, and through some quite hidden lanes to Fieldhead. She glided quickly under the green hedges and across the greener leaves. Shirley, indolent with the heat and gay with her youth and pleasurable nature, wanted to talk, laugh, and linger, but Caroline, intent on being on time, 
persevered in dressing her as fast as fingers could fasten strings or insert pins. At length, as she united a final row of hook and eyes, she found leisure to chide her, saying she was very naughty to be so unpunctual, that she looked even now the picture of incorrigible carelessness, and so surely did, but a very lovely picture of that tiresome quality. She presented quite a contrast to Caroline. There was style in every fold of her dress and every line of her figure. The rich silk suited her better than a simpler costume. The deep embroidered scarf became her. She wore it negligently, but gracefully. The wreath on her bonnet crowned her well. The attention to fashion, the tasteful appliance of ornament in each portion of her dress, were quite in place with her. All this suited her, like the frank light in her eyes, the rallying smile about her lips, like her shaft straight carriage and lightsome step. Caroline took her hand when she was dressed, hurried her downstairs, out of doors, and thus they sped through the fields, laughing as they went, and looking very much like snow-white dove and gem-tinted bird of paradise joined in social flight. There was no dust, no moisture, to soil the hem of her stainless garment, or to damp her slender sandal. After the late rains all was clean, and under the present growing sun all was dry. She walked fearlessly then, on daisy and turf, through thick plantations. She reached Fieldhead and penetrated to Miss Kildar's dressing room. It was well she had come, or surely would have been too late. Instead of making ready with all speed, she lay stretched on a couch, absorbed in reading. Mrs. Pryor stood near, vainly urging her to rise and dress. Caroline wasted no words. She immediately took the book from her, and with her own hands commenced the business of disrobing and re-robing her. Thanks to Miss Hellstone's promptitude, they arrived in good time. While yet trees hid the church, they heard the bell tolling a measured but urgent summons for all to assemble. The trooping in of numbers, the trampling of many steps and murmuring of many voices, were likewise audible. From a rising ground they presently saw, on the Winbury Road, the Winbury School approaching. It numbered five hundred souls. The rector and curate, Boltby and Don, headed it. The former looming large in full canonicals, walking as became a beneficed priest, under the canopy of a shovel hat, with the dignity of an ample corporation, the embellishment of the squarest and vastest of black coats, and the support of the stoutest of gold-headed canes. As the doctor walked, he now and then slightly flourished his cane, and inclined a shovel hat with a dogmatical wag towards his aide-de-camp. That aide-de-camp, Don, to wit, narrow as the line of his shape was, compared to the broad bulk of his principal, contrived, notwithstanding, to look every inch a curate. All about him was pragmatical and self-complacent, from his turned-up nose and elevated chin to his clerical black gaiters, his somewhat short, strapless trousers, and his square-toed shoes. Walk on, Mr. Don. You have undergone scrutiny. You think you look well. Whether the white and purple figures watching you from yonder hill think so is another question. These figures come running down when the regiment has marched by. The churchyard is full of children and teachers, all in their very best holiday attire. And, distressed as is the district, bad as are the times, it is wonderful to see how respectably, how handsomely even, they have contrived to clothe themselves. That British love of decency will work miracles. The poverty which reduces an Irish girl to rags is impotent to rob the English girl of the neat wardrobe she knows necessary to her self-respect. Besides, the lady of the manor, that surely, now gazing with pleasure on this well-dressed and happy-looking crowd, has really done them good. Her seasonable bounty consoled many a poor family against the coming holiday, and supplied many a child with a new frock or bonnet for the occasion. She knows it, and is elate with the consciousness. Glad that her money, example, and influence have really substantially benefited those around her. She cannot be charitable like Miss Ainley. It is not in her nature. It relieves her to feel that there is another way of being charitable, practicable for other characters and under other circumstances. Caroline, too, is pleased, for she has also done good in her small way. Robbed herself of more than one dress, ribbon, or collar she could ill spare to aid in fitting out the scholars of her class. And as she could not give money, she has followed Miss Ainsley's example in giving her time and her industry to sew for the children. Not only is the churchyard full, but the rectory garden is also thronged, Pairs and parties of ladies and gentlemen are seen walking amongst the waving lilacs and laburnums. The house also is occupied. At the wide-open parlor windows, gay groups are standing. These are the patrons and teachers, who are to swell the procession. In the parson's croft, behind the rectory, are the musicians of the three parish bands, with their instruments. Fanny and Eliza, in the smartest of caps and gowns, and the whitest of aprons, move amongst them, serving out quarts of ale, whereof a stock was brewed very sound and strong some weeks since by the rector's orders, and under his special superintendence. Whatever he had a hand in must be managed handsomely. Shabby doings of any description were not endured under his sanction. From the erection of a public building, a church, school, or courthouse, to the cooking of a dinner, he still advocated the lordly, liberal, and effective. 
Miss Kildar was like him in this respect, and they mutually approved each other's arrangements. Caroline and Shirley were soon in the midst of the company. The former met them very easily for her. Instead of sitting down in a retired corner or stealing away to her own room till the procession should be marshaled, according to her wont, she moved through the three parlors, conversed and smiled, absolutely spoke once or twice ere she was spoken to, and, in short, seemed a new creature. It was Shirley's presence which thus transformed her. The view of Miss Kildar's air and manner did her a world of good. Shirley had no fear of her kind, no tendency to shrink from, to avoid it. All human beings, men, women, or children, whom low breeding or coarse presumption did not render positively offensive, were welcome enough to her, some much more so than others, of course, but, generally speaking, till a man had indisputably proved himself bad and a nuisance, Shirley was willing to thank him good and an acquisition, and to treat him accordingly. This disposition made her a general favorite, for it robbed her very rarely of its sting, and gave her serious or smiling conversation a happy charm. Nor did it diminish the value of her intimate friendship, which was a distinct thing from this social benevolence, depending indeed on quite a different part of her character. Miss Helstone was the choice of her affection and intellect, the Mrs. Pearson, Sykes, Wynne, etc., only the profiters by her good nature and vivacity. Dawn happened to come into the drawing room while Shirley, sitting on the sofa, formed the center of a tolerably wide circle. She had already forgotten her exasperation against him, and she bowed and smiled good-humoredly. The disposition of the man was then seen. He knew neither how to decline the advance with dignity, his punishment had impressed him with no sense of shame, and he did not experience that feeling on encountering this chastiser, as one whose just pride has been wounded, nor how to meet it with frankness, as one who is glad to forget and forgive. He was not vigorous enough in evil to be actively malignant. He merely passed by sheepishly with a rated, scowling look. Nothing could ever again reconcile him to his enemy, while no passion of resentment for even sharper and more ignominious inflictions could his lymphatic nature know. "'He was not worth a scene,' said Shirley to Caroline. What a fool I was, to revenge on poor Don his silly spite at Yorkshire. It seemed as if Malone wished to justify the preference, for the words were scarcely out of the speaker's mouth when Peter Augustus came up, is something like crushing a gnat for attacking the height of a rhinoceros. Had I been a gentleman, I believe I should have helped him off the premise by dint of physical force. I am glad now I only employed the moral weapon. But he must come near me no more. I don't like him. He irritates me. There is not even amusement to be had out of him. Malone is better sport. All in grand tenue, gloved and scented, with his hair oiled and brushed to perfection, and bearing in one hand a huge bunch of cabbage roses, five or six in full blow. These he presented to the heiress with a grace to which the most cunning pencil could do but defective justice, and who, after this, could dare say that Peter was not a ladies' man. He had gathered and he had given flowers, he had offered a sentimental, a poetic tribute at the shrine of love or mammon. Hercules, holding the distaff, was but a faint type of Peter bearing the roses. He must have thought this himself, for he seemed amazed at what he had done. He backed without a word, he was going away with a husky chuckle of self-satisfaction. Then he bethought himself to stop and turn, to ascertain by ocular testimony that he really had presented a bouquet. Yes, there were the six red cabbages on the purple satin lap, a very white hand with some gold rings on the fingers slightly holding them together, and streaming ringlets, half hiding a laughing face, drooped over them. Only half hiding. Peter saw the laugh. It was unmistakable. He was made a joke of. His gallantry, his chivalry, were the subject of a jest for a petticoat. For two petticoats, Miss Hellstone too was smiling. Moreover, he felt he was seen through, and Peter grew black as a thundercloud. When Shirley looked up, a fell eye was fastened on her. Malone, at least, had energy enough in hate. She saw it in his glance. "'Peter is worth a scene, and she'll have it if he likes, one day,' she whispered to her friend. And now, solemn and somber as to their color, though bland enough as to their faces, appeared at the dining-room door the three rectors. They had hitherto been busy in the church, and were now coming to take some little refreshment for the body, ere the march commenced. The large Morocco-covered easy-chair had been left vacant for Dr. Boltby. He was put into it, and Caroline, obeying the instigations of Shirley, who told her now was the time to play the hostess, sound voix de poitrine. He rumbled out thanks for attentions and assurances of his tolerable health. Of Caroline, he took no manner of notice as she came near, save to accept that she offered. He did not see her. He did not see her. He hastened to hand to her uncle's vast, revered, and, on the whole, worthy friend, a glass of wine and a plate of macaroons. Boltby's church wardens, patrons of the Sunday school both, as he insisted on their being, were already beside him. Mrs. Sykes and the other ladies of his congregation were on his right hand and on his left, expressing their hopes that he was not fatigued, their fears that the day would be too warm for him. 
Mrs. Boltby, who held an opinion that when her lord dropped asleep after a good dinner, his face became as the face of an angel, was bending over him, tenderly wiping some perspiration, real or imaginary, from his brow. Boltby, in short, was, in his glory, and in a round, he hardly knew that such a person existed. He saw the macaroons, however, and being fond of sweets, possessed himself of a small handful thereof. The wine Mrs. Boltby insisted on mingling with hot water, and qualifying with sugar and nutmeg. To him, Caroline turned her attention with pleasure. What should she bring him? He must not help himself. He must be served by her. And she provided herself with a little salver. Mr. Hall stood near an open window, breathing the fresh air and scent of flowers, and talking like a brother to Miss Ainley, that she might offer him variety. Margaret Hall joined them, so did Miss Kildar. The four ladies stood round their favorite pastor. They also had an idea that they looked on the face of an earthly angel. Cyril Hall was their pope, infallible to them as Dr. Thomas Boltby to his admirers. A throng, too, enclosed the rector of Briarfield. Twenty or more pressed round him, and no parson was ever more potent in a circle than old Hellstone. The curates, herding together after their manner, made a constellation of three lesser planets. Diverse young ladies watched them afar off, but ventured not nigh. Mr. Hellstone produced his watch. Ten minutes to two, he announced aloud. Time for all to fall into line. Come. He seized his shovel hat and marched away. All rose and followed en masse. The twelve hundred children were drawn up in three bodies of four hundred souls each. In the rear of each regiment was stationed a band. Between every twenty there was an interval, wherein Hellstone posted the teachers in pairs. To the van of the armies he summoned, Grace Boltby and Mary Sykes lead out Winbury. Caroline Hellstone and Shirley Kildar head Briarfield. Then again he gave command, Mr. Don to Winbury, Mr. Sweeting to Nunnally, Mr. Malone to Briarfield. And these gentlemen stepped up before the Lady Generals. The rectors passed to the full front. The parish clerks fell to the extreme rear. Hellstone lifted a shovel hat. In an instant out clashed the eight bells in the tower. Loud swelled the sounding bands. Flute spoke and clarion answered. Deep rolled the drums and away they marched. The broad white road unrolled before the long procession. The sun and sky surveyed it cloudless, the wind tossed the tree boughs above it, and the twelve hundred children and one hundred and forty adults of which it was composed trod on in time and tune, with gay faces and glad hearts. It was a joyous scene, and a scene to do good. It was a day of happiness for rich and poor, the work first of God and then of the clergy. Let England's priests have their due. They are a faulty set in some respects, being only of common flesh and blood like us all. But the land would be badly off without them. Britain would miss her church if that church fell. God save it. God also reform it. You have a pleasure, Shirley, to take you from all these fine people who court your society so assiduously, and to whom you can, without art or effort, make yourself so pleasant. Not quite without effort. I am already tired of the exertion. It is but insipid barren work, talking and laughing with the good gentlefolks of Briarfield. I have been looking out for your white dress for the last ten minutes. I locked I love in a crowd, and to compare them with others. I have thus compared you. You resemble none of the rest, Lena. There's like Harriet Sykes, for instance. Beside her, faces in yours here. You are not a model beauty that surrounds him like Iliab amongst humbler person appears almost insignificant. But you look agreeable. You look reflective. You look what I call interesting. Hush, Shirley, you flatter me. I don't wonder that your scholars like you. Nonsense, Shirley, talk of something else. We will talk of more then, and we will watch him. I see him even now. Where? Chapter 17. The School Feast. Out of the reach of persecuting troopers. Not on combat bent, nor foemen in search, was this priest-led and woman-officered company, yet their music played martial tunes, and, to judge by the eyes and carriage of some, Miss Kildar, for instance, the sound awoke, if not a martial, yet a longing spirit. Old Hellstone, turning by chance, looked into her face and laughed, and she laughed at him. There is no battle in prospect, he said. Our country does not want us to fight for it. No foe or tyrant is questioning or threatening our liberty. There is nothing to be done. We are only taking a walk. Keep your hand on the reins, Captain, and slack the fire in that spirit. It is not wanted. The more is the pity. Take your own advice, Doctor, was Shirley's response. To Caroline, she murmured, I'll borrow of imagination what reality will not give me. We are not soldiers. Bloodshed is not my desire. Or, if we are, we are soldiers of the cross. Time has rolled back some hundreds of years, and we are bound on a pilgrimage to Palestine. But no, that is too visionary. I need a sterner dream. We are lowlanders of Scotland. 
We know that battle may follow prayer, and as we believe that in the worst issue of battle, heaven must be our reward, we are ready and willing to redden the peat moss with our blood. That music stirs my soul. It wakens all my life. It makes my heart beat. Not with its temperate daily pulse, but with a new, thrilling vigor. I must long for danger, for a faith, a land, or at least a lover to defend. Look, Shirley, interrupted Caroline. What is that red speck above Stilbro brow? You have a keener sight than I. Just turn your eagle eye to it. Miss Kildar looked. I see, she said, then added presently, there is a line of red. They are soldiers, cavalry soldiers. She subjoined quickly. They ride fast. There are six of them. They will pass us. No, they have turned off to the right. They saw our procession and will avoid it by making a circuit. Where are they going? Perhaps they are only exercising their horses. Perhaps so. We see them no more now. Mr. Hellstone here spoke. Following a covenanting captain up into the hills to hold a meeting, were agitated. The curates nudged each other. Mr. Hall turned to the ladies and smiled. We shall pass through Royd Lane to reach Nunnally Common by a shortcut, said he and into the straits of Royd Lane they accordingly defiled. It was very narrow, so narrow that only two could walk abreast without falling into the ditch which ran along each side. They had gained the middle of it when excitement became obvious in the clerical commanders. Boltby's spectacles and Hellstone's rehoboam. What is the matter? was the demand. He pointed with his staff to the end of the lane before them. Lo and behold, another, an opposition, procession was there entering, headed also by men in black, and followed also, as they could now hear, by music. Is it our double? asked Shirley. Our manifold wrath. Here is a card turned up. "'If you wanted a battle, you were likely to get one, at least of looks,' whispered Caroline, laughing, "'with the intention of obstructing our march and driving us back.' "'Bad manners,' said Shirley. "'And I hate bad manners. Of course, they must have a lesson.' "'Give way,' retorted Hellstone sternly, turning round. "'Who talks of giving way? You boys, mind what you are about. The ladies, I know, will be firm. I can trust them. There is not a churchwoman here but will stand her ground against these folks for the honour of the establishment. What does Miss Kildar say?' He had nearly reached the other sable leaders, when he who appeared to act as the hostile commander-in-chief, a large, greasy man with black hair combed flat in his forehead, called a halt. The procession paused. He drew forth a hymn-book, gave out a verse, set a tune, and "'They shall not pass us!' cried the curates unanimously. "'Will not give way!' She asks, "'What is it?' The dissenting in Methodist schools, the Baptist, Independents, and Wesleyans, joined an unholy alliance, and turning purposely into this lane. "'A lesson in politeness,' suggested Mr. Hall, who was ever for peace. "'Not an example of rudeness.' Old Hellstone moved on. Quickening a step, he marched some yards in advance of his company, and they all struck up the most dolorous of canticles. Hellstone signed to his bands. They clashed out with all the power of brass. He desired them to play Rule Britannia, and ordered the children to join in vocally, which they did with enthusiastic spirit. The enemy was sung and stormed down. As far as noise went, he was conquered. "'Now, follow me!' exclaimed Hellstone, not at a run, but at a firm, smart pace. "'Be steady, every child and woman of you. Keep together. Hold on by each other's skirts, if necessary.' and he strode on with such a determined and deliberate gait, and was, besides, so well seconded by his scholars and teachers, who did exactly as he told them, neither running nor faltering, but marching with cool, solid impetus. The curates, too, being compelled to do the same, as they were between two fires, Halstone and Miss Kildar, both of whom watched any deviation with lynx-eyed vigilance, and were ready, the one with his cane, the other with her parasol, to rebuke the slightest breach of orders, the least independent or irregular demonstration, that the body of dissenters were first amazed, then alarmed, then borne down and pressed back, and at last forced to turn tail and leave the outlet from Royd Lane free, his psalm quelled. Boltby suffered in the onslaught, but Halstone and Malone between them held him up and brought him through the business, whole in limb, though sorely tried in wind. The fat dissenter who had given out the hymn was left sitting in the ditch. He was a spirit merchant by trade, a leader of the nonconformists, and, it was said, drank more water in that one afternoon than he had swallowed for a twelvemonth before. Mr. Hall had taken care of Caroline, and Caroline of him, had been pressed into the service of the day as waiters. Each vied with the other in smartness and daintiness of dress, and many handsome forms were seen amongst the younger ones. About half-past three the procession turned back, and at four once more regained the starting place. Long lines of benches were arranged in the close-shorn fields around the school. There the children were seated, and huge baskets, covered up with white cloths, and great smoky and tin vessels were brought out. 
Ere the distribution of good things commenced, a brief grace was pronounced by Mr. Hall and sung by the children. He and Miss Ainley made their own quiet comments to each other afterwards on the incident. Miss Kildar and Mr. Hellstone shook hands heartily when they had fairly got the whole party through the lane. The curates began to exult, but Mr. Hellstone presently put the curb on their innocent spirits. He remarked that they never had sense to know what to say, and had better hold their tongues, and he reminded them that the business was none of their managing. Their young voices sounded melodious, even touching in the open air. Large currant buns and hot, well-sweetened tea were then administered in the proper spirit of liberality. No stinting was permitted on this day, at least. The rule for each child's allowance being that it was to have about twice as much as it could possibly eat, thus leaving a reserve to be carried home for such as age, sickness, or other impediment prevented from coming to the feast. Buns and beer circulated, meantime, amongst the musicians and church singers. Afterwards, the benches were removed, and they were left to unbend their spirits in licensed play. A bell summoned the teachers, patrons, and patronesses to the schoolroom. Miss Kildar, Miss Hellstone, and many other ladies were already there, glancing over the arrangement of their separate trays and tables. Most of the female servants of the neighborhood, together with the clerks, the singers, and the musicians' wives, at these tables, the elite of the company were to be entertained, strict rules of equality not being more in fashion at Briarfield than elsewhere. Miss Helston removed her bonnet and scarf that she might be less oppressed with the heat. Her long curls falling on her necks, about half a score were cutting bread and butter, another half score supplying hot water, brought from the copper of the rector's kitchen. The profusion of flowers and evergreens decorating the white walls, the show of silver teapots and bright porcelain on the tables, the active figures, blithe faces, gay dresses flitting about everywhere, formed altogether a refreshing and lively spectacle. Everybody talked, not very loudly, but merrily, and the canary birds sang shrill in their high-hung cages. Caroline, as the rector's niece, took her place at one of the three first tables. Mrs. Boltby and Margaret Hall officiated at the others, served almost in place of a veil, and for the rest, her muslin dress was fashioned modestly as a nun's robe, enabling her thus to dispense the encumbrance of a shawl. The room was filling. Mr. Hall had taken his post beside Caroline, who now, as she rearranged the cups and spoons before her, whispered to him in a low voice remarks on the events of the day. He looked a little grave about what had taken place in Roy Lane, and she tried to smile him out of his seriousness. Miss Kildar sat near, for a wonder, neither laughing nor talking, on the contrary, very still, and gazing round her vigilantly. She seemed afraid lest some intruder should take a seat she apparently wished to reserve next to her own. Ever and anon she spread her satin dress over an undue portion of the bench, or laid her gloves or her embroidered handkerchief upon it. Caroline noticed this menage at last, and asked her what friend she expected. Shirley bent towards her, almost touched her ear with her rosy lips, and whispered with the musical softness that often characterized her tones, and I made him promise to come with his sister and to sit at our table. He won't fail me, I feel certain, but I apprehend his coming too late and being separated from us. Here is a fresh batch arriving. Every place will be taken. Provoking. In fact, Mr. Wynne, the magistrate, his wife, his son, and his two daughters now entered in high state. They were Briarfield gentry. Of course, their place was at the first table, and being conducted thither, they filled up the whole remaining space. For Miss Kildar's comfort, Mr. Sam Wynne inducted himself into the very vacancy when what she said tended even remotely to stir some sweet secret source of feeling in her heart. I expect Mr. Moore. I saw him last night. She had kept for Moore, planting himself solidly on her gown, her gloves, and her handkerchief. Mr. Sam was one of the objects of her aversion, and the more so because he showed serious symptoms of an aim at her hand. The old gentleman, too, had publicly declared that the Fieldhead estate and the DeWalden estate were delightfully contagious, a malapropism which rumor had not failed to repeat to Shirley. Caroline's ears yet rung with that thrilling whisper, I expect Mr. Moore. Her heart yet beat in her cheek, and her cheek yet glowed with it, when a note from the organ pealed above the confused hum of the place. Mr. Boltby, Mr. Halston, and Mr. Hall rose, so did all present, and Grace was sung to the accompaniment of the music, and then tea began. She was kept too busy with her office for a while to have leisure for looking round, but the last cup being filled, she threw a restless glance over the room. There were some ladies and several gentlemen standing about yet unaccommodated with seats. Amidst a group she recognized her spinster friend, Miss Mann, whom the fine weather had tempted, or some urgent friend had persuaded, to leave her drear solitude for one hour of social enjoyment. Miss Mann looked tired of standing. A lady in a yellow bonnet brought her a chair. Caroline knew well that chapeau en satin jaune. She knew that black hair, and the kindly though rather opinionated and forward-looking face under it. She knew that robe de suie noir. She knew even that shawl gris de lin. 
She knew in short Hortense more, and she wanted to jump up and run to her and kiss her, to give her one embrace for her own sake and two for her brother's. She half rose, indeed, with a smothered exclamation, and perhaps, for the impulse was very strong, she would have run across the room and actually saluted her, but a hand replaced her in her seat, and a voice behind her whispered, "'Wait till after tea, Lena, and then I'll bring her to you.' And when she could look up, she did, and there was Robert himself close behind, smiling at her eagerness, looking better than she had ever seen him look, looking, indeed, to her partial eyes, so very handsome that she dared not trust herself to hazard a second glance, for his image struck on her vision with painful brightness, and pictured itself on her memory as vividly as if there daguerreotyped by a pencil of keen lightning.' He moved on and spoke to Miss Kildar, surely irritated by some unwelcome attentions from Sam Wynn, and by the fact of that gentleman being still seated on her gloves and handkerchief, and probably also by Moore's want of punctuality, was by no means in good humor. She first shrugged her shoulders at him, and then she said a bitter word or two about his insupportable tardiness. Moore neither apologized nor retorted. He stood near her quietly, as if waiting to see whether she would recover her temper, which she did in little more than three minutes, indicating the change by offering him her hand. Moore took it with a smile, half corrective, half grateful. The slightest possible shake of the head delicately marked the former quality. It is probable a gentle pressure indicated the latter. And Miss Burtwistle, go, John Sykes will be your vis and you will sit with your back towards us. Moore, however, preferred lingering about where he was. He now and then took a turn down the long room. You may sit where you can now, Mr. Moore, said Shirley, also smiling. You see there is an inch of room for you here, but I discern plenty of space at Mrs. Boltby's table, between Miss Armitage pausing in his walk to interchange greetings with other gentlemen in his own paceless predicament. But still he came back to the magnet, surely, bringing with him, each time he returned, observations it was necessary to whisper in her ear. Meantime, poor Sam Wynne looked far from comfortable. His fair neighbor, judging from her movements, appeared in a mood the most unquiet and unaccommodating. She would not sit still two seconds. She was hot, she fanned herself, complained of want of air and space. She remarked that, in her opinion, when people have finished their tea, they ought to leave the tables, and announced distinctly that she expected to faint if the present state of things continued. Mr. Sam offered to accompany her into the open air, just the way to give her her death of cold, she alleged. In short, his post became untenable, and having swallowed his quantum of tea, he judged it expedient to evacuate. Moore should have been at hand, whereas he was quite at the other extremity of the room, deep in conference with Christopher Sykes. A large corn factor, Timothy Ramsden Esquire, happened to be nearer, and feeling himself tired of standing, he advanced to fill the vacant seat. Shirley's expedience did not fail her. A sweep of her scarf upset her teacups. Its contents were shared between the bench and her own satin dress. Of course, it became necessary to call the waiter to remedy the mischief. Mr. Ramsden, a stout, puffy man, as large in person as he was in property, held aloof from the consequent commotion. Shirley, usually almost culpably indifferent to slight accidents affecting dress, etc., now made a commotion that might have become the most delicate and nervous of her sex. Mr. Ramsden opened his mouth, withdrew slowly, and, as Miss Kildar again intimated her intention to give way and swoon on the spot, he turned on his heel and beat a heavy retreat. Moore at last returned. Calmly surveying the bustle and somewhat quizzically scanning Shirley's enigmatical-looking countenance, he remarked that in truth this was the hottest end of the room, that he found a climate there calculated to agree with none but cool temperaments like his own, and putting the waiters, the napkin, the satin robe, the whole turmoil in short, to one side, he installed himself where destiny evidently decreed he should sit. Shirley subsided. Her features altered their lines. The raised knit brow and inexplicable curve of the mouth became straight again. Wilfulness and roguery gave place to other expressions, and all the angular movements with which she had vexed the soul of Sam Wynn were conjured to rest as by a charm. Still no gracious glance was cast on Moore. On the contrary, he was accused of giving her a world of trouble, and roundly charged with being the cause of depriving her of the esteem of Mr. Ramsden and the invaluable friendship of Mr. Samuel Wynne. "'Wouldn't have offended either gentleman for the world,' she answered. "'I have always been accustomed to treat both with the most respectful consideration, and there, owing to you, how they have been used. I shall not be happy till I have made it up. I never am happy till I am friends with my neighbors. So tomorrow I must make a pilgrimage to Royd Corn Mill, soothe the miller and praise the grain, and next day I must call it to Walden, where I hate to go.' and carry in my reticule half an oatcake to give to Mr. Sam's favorite pointers. You know the surest path to the heart of each swain, I doubt not, said Moore quietly. He looked very content to have at last secured his present place, but he made no fine speech expressive of gratification. 
and offered no apology for the trouble he had given. His phlegm became him wonderfully. It made him look handsomer. He was so composed. It made his vicinage pleasant. It was so peace-restoring. You would not have thought, to look at him, that he was a poor, struggling man seated beside a rich woman. The calm of equality stilled his aspect. Perhaps that calm, too, reigned in his soul. Now and then, from the way in which he looked down on Miss Kildar as he addressed her, you would have fancied his station towered above hers as much as his stature did. Almost stern lights sometimes crossed his brow and gleamed in his eyes. Their conversation had become animated, though it was confined to a low key. She was urging him with questions. Evidently, he refused to her curiosity all the gratification it demanded. She sought his eye once with hers. You read, and its soft yet eager expression that it solicited clearer replies. Moore smiled pleasantly, but his lips continued sealed. Then she was piqued and turned away, but he recalled her attention in two minutes. He seemed making promises, which he soothed her into accepting in lieu of information. It appeared that the heat of the room did not suit Miss Hellstone. She grew paler and paler as the process of tea-making was protracted. The moment thanks were returned, she quitted the table and hastened to follow her cousin Hortense, who, with Miss Mann, had already sought the open air. Robert Moore had risen when she did. Perhaps he meant to speak to her, but there was yet a parting word to exchange with Miss Kildar, and while it was being uttered, Caroline had vanished. Hortense received her former pupil with a demeanor of more dignity than warmth. She had been seriously offended by Mr. Halstone's proceedings, and had all along considered Caroline to blame in obeying her uncle too literally. "'You are a very great stranger,' she said austerely, as her pupil held and pressed her hand. The pupil knew her too well to remonstrate or complain of coldness. She let the punctilious whim pass, sure that her natural bonté— I use this French word because it expresses just what I mean, neither goodness nor good nature, but something between the two— would presently get the upper hand. It did. Hortense had no sooner examined her face well and observed the change its somewhat wasted features betrayed than her mien softened. Kissing her on both cheeks, she asked anxiously after her health. Caroline answered gaily. It would, however, have been her lot to undergo a long cross-examination, followed by an endless lecture on this head, had not Miss Mann called off the attention of the questioner and the everyday air of melancholy suited the solitary spinster better. She would hardly know her young friend tonight and quitted her with a cool nod. Hortense having promised to accompany her home, they departed together. Caroline now looked round for Shirley. She saw the rainbow scarf and purple dress in the center of a throng of ladies, all well known to herself, but all of the order whom she systematically avoided whenever avoidance was possible. Shyer at some moments than at others, she felt just now no courage at all to join this company. She could not, however, stand alone where all others went in pairs or parties. So she approached a group of her own scholars, great girls, or rather young women, who were standing watching some hundreds of the younger children playing at Blind Man's Bluff. Miss Hellstone knew these girls liked her, yet she was shy even with them out of school. They were not more in awe of her than she of them. Her evident timidity went off. They did not take advantage of it. Peasant girls as they were, they had too much of our own English sensibility to be guilty of the coarse error. They stood round her still, civil, friendly, receiving her slight smiles and rather hurried efforts to converse with a good feeling and good breeding, the last quality being the result of the first. She drew near them now, rather to find protection in their company than to patronize them with her presence. By some instinct, they knew her weakness, and with natural politeness, they respected it. Her knowledge commanded their esteem when she taught them, her gentleness attracted their regard, and because she was what they considered wise and good when on duty, they kindly overlooked Mr. Sam Wynn, coming up with great haste, to insist on the elder girls joining in the game as well as the younger ones, Carolina was again left alone. She was meditating a quiet retreat to the house, when Shirley, which soon set her at her ease, perceiving from afar her isolation, hastened to her side. Let us go to the top of the fields, she said. I know you don't like crowds, Caroline. But it were shepherds, like Saul in a war council, and a war council it is, if I'm not mistaken. Why so, Shirley? asked Caroline, whose eye had at last caught the object it sought. Robert is just now speaking to my uncle, and they are shaking hands. They are then reconciled. Reconciled not without good reason, depend on it, making common cause against some common foe. And why, I think you, are Messrs. Wynne and Sykes, the Armitage and Ramsden, gathered in such a close circle round them? And why is Malone beckoned to join them? Where he is summoned, be sure a strong arm is needed. Shirley, as she watched, grew restless, her eyes flashed. And as Caroline asked the question, she looked not over the fields, but into Miss Kildar's eyes, as was her wont whenever Shirley mentioned any object she descried afar. Her friend had quicker vision than herself, and Caroline seemed to think that the secret of her eagle acuteness might be read in her dark gray irids, 
or rather perhaps she only sought guidance by the direction of those discriminated in brilliant spheres. There is more, said Shirley, pointing right across the wide field where a thousand children were playing, and now nearly a thousand adult spectators walking about. There, can you miss the tall stature and straight port? He looks amidst me, she said. That is always the way when it comes to the point. What about? Cannot you feel? There is some mystery afloat. Some event is expected. Some preparation is to be made, I am certain. I saw it all in Mr. Moore's manner this evening. He was excited, yet hard. Hard to you, Shirley? Yes, to me. He often is hard to me. We seldom converse tete-a-tete, -tete, but I am made to feel that the basis of his character is not of eiderdown. Yet he seemed to talk to you softly. Did he not? Very gentle tones and quiet manner. Yet the man is peremptory and secret. His secrecy vexes me. Yes, Robert is secret. When he has scarcely a right to be with me, especially as he commenced by giving me his confidence, having done nothing to forfeit that confidence, it ought not to be withdrawn, but I suppose I am not considered iron-souled enough to be trusted in a crisis. He fears, probably, to occasion you uneasiness. An unnecessary precaution. I am of elastic materials, not soon crushed. He ought to know that. But the man is proud. He has his faults. Say what you will, Lena. Observe how engaged that group appear. They do not know we are watching them. If we keep on the alert, Shirley, we shall perhaps find the clue to their secret. They will be thus. They are shaking hands. Shaking hands with emphasis, added Shirley, as if they were ratting some solemn league and covenant. They saw Robert quit the group, pass through a gate, and disappear. And he has not bid us good-bye, murmured Caroline. Scarcely had the words escaped her lips when she not to deny the confession of disappointment they seemed to imply. An unbidden suffusion for one moment seemed unusual movements ere long. Perhaps tomorrow, brah. But my eyes and ears are wide open. Mr. Moore, you shall be under surveillance. Be you vigilant also, Lena. I will. Robert is going. I saw him turn. I believe he noticed and brightened her eyes. Oh, that is soon remedied, exclaimed Shirley. We'll make him bid us goodbye. Make him? That is not the same thing, was the answer. It shall be the same thing. But he is gone. You can't overtake him. I know a shorter way than he has taken. We will intercept him. But surely, I would rather not go. Caroline said this as Miss Kildar seized her arm and hurried her down the fields. It was vain to contend. Nothing was so willful as Shirley when she took a whim into her head. Caroline found herself out of sight of the crowd almost before she was aware, and ushered into a narrow shady spot, embowered above with hawthorns, and enameled underfoot with daisies. Evening sun checkering the turf, nor was she sensible, sensible of the pure incense exhaling at the sour from tree and plant. She only heard the wicked opening at one end, and knew Robert was approaching. The long sprays of the hawthorns shooting out before them served as a screen. They saw him before he observed them. At a glance, Ken perceived that his social hilarity was gone. He had left it behind him in the joy-echoing fields around the school. What remained now was his dark, quiet, business countenance. As Shirley had said, a certain hardness characterized his air, while his eye was excited but austere. So much the time was the present freak of Shirley's. If he had looked disposed for the holiday mirth, it would not have mattered much, but now— I told you not to come, said Caroline somewhat bitterly to her friend. She seemed truly perturbed. To be intruded on Robert thus, against her will and his expectation, and when he evidently would rather not be delayed, keenly annoyed her. It did not annoy Miss Kildar in the least. She stepped forward and faced her tenant, barring his way. You omitted to bid us goodbye, she said. Omitted to bid you goodbye? Where did you come from? Are you fairies? I left two like you, one in purple and one in white, standing at the top of a bank, four fields off, but a minute ago. You left us there and find us here. We've been watching you and shall watch you still. You must be questioned one day, but not now. At present, all you have to do is say goodbye and then pass. More glance action, heightened by another feeling. Something in his tone when he spoke, as well as in his words, marked that last sentiment to be gratitude. Good night. May you rest safely and serenely till morning. And you, Mr. Moore, what are you going to do? What have you been saying to Mr. Hellstone, with whom I saw you shake hands? Why did all those gentlemen gather round you? Put away reserve for once. Be frank with me. Who can resist you? I will be frank. Tomorrow, if there's anything to relate, you shall hear it. Just now, pleaded Shirley. Don't procrastinate. But I can only tell half a tale, and my time is limited. I have not a moment to spare. Hereafter, I will make amends for delay by candor. But are you going home? Yes. Not to leave it any more tonight? Certainly not. At present, farewell to both of you.
Caroline's hand and joined it in the same clasp in which he held Shirley's, but somehow it was not ready for him. She had withdrawn a few steps apart. Her answer to Moore's adieu was only a slight bend of the head and a gentle, serious smile. He sought no more cordial token. Again he said, farewell, and quitted them both. There, it is over, said Shirley when he was gone. We have made him bid us good to the other without unbending his aspect. Days of fet have their privileges, and so have days of hazard, observed he gravely. Come, don't moralize. Say good night and pass, urged Shirley. Must I say good night to you, Miss Kildar? Yes, and to Caroline likewise. It is nothing new, I hope. You have bid us both good night before. He took her hand, held it in one of his, and covered it with the other. He looked down at her gravely, kindly, yet commandingly. The heiress could not make this man her subject. In his gaze on her bright face, there was no servility, hardly homage, but there was in the night and he had a ground in his esteem, I think, Carrie. I hope not, was the brief reply. I consider you very timid and undemonstrative, remarked Miss Kildar. Why did you not if you could? Is love in your eyes a crime, Caroline? Love a crime? No, surely. Love is a divine virtue. But why drag that word into the conversation? It is singularly irrelevant. Good, pronounced Shirley. The two girls paced the green lane in silence. Caroline first resumed. Obtrusiveness is a crime, forwardness is a crime, and both disgust. But love, no purest angel need blush to love. And when I see or hear either man or woman couple shame with love. I know their minds are coarse, their associations debased. Many who think themselves refined ladies and gentlemen, and on whose lips do not give more your hand when he offered you his. He is your cousin, you like him. Are you ashamed to let him perceive your affection? He perceives all of it that interests him. No need to make a display of feeling. You are laconic. You could lips the word vulgarity is forever hovering cannot mention love without betraying their own innate and imbecile degradation it is a low feeling in their estimation connected only with low ideas for the world you describe three-fourths of the world caroline they are cold they are cowardly they are stupid on the subject surely they never loved they never were loved thou art right lena and in their dense ignorance they blaspheme living fire seraph brought from a divine altar they confound it with sparks mounted from Tophet. the sudden and joyous clash of bells here stopped the dialogue by summoning all to church by requesting to be conducted home, the poor invalid was already fatigued. Her weariness made her cross, too cross almost to speak to Caroline, and besides, that younger person's white dress and lively look were displeased. Okay, time for our little intermission where I remind you guys how I am able to make this podcast happen. And tarnished armies passed rank and file before him. Milton tried to see the first woman, but Carrie, he saw her not. Chapter 18, which the genteel reader is recommended to skip, low persons being here introduced. The evening was still and warm, close and sultry it even promised to become. Round the descending sun, the clouds glowed purple, summer tints, rather Indian than English, suffused the horizon and cast rosy reflections on hillside, house front, tree bowl, on winding roads and undulating pasture ground. The two girls came down from the field slowly. By the time they reached the churchyard, the bells were hushed, the multitudes were gathered into the church. The whole scene was solitary. How pleasant and calm it is, said Caroline, and how hot it will be in the church, responded Shirley, and what a dreary long speech Dr. Boltby will make. Now the curates will hammer over their prepared orations. For my part, I would rather not enter. But my uncle will be angry if he observes our absence. I will bear the brunt of his wrath. He will not devour me. I shall be sorry to miss his pungent speech. I know it will be all sense for the church. Of the blood of nations, you are bold to say so, Shirley. Not more bold than faithful. It was his cook that he saw, or it was Mrs. Gill, as I have seen her, making custards in the heat of summer, in the cool dairy with rose trees, and all cost to see for schism. He'll not forget the Battle of Royd Lane. I shall be sorry also to deprive you of Mr. Hall's sincere friendly homily, with all its racy Yorkshireisms, but here I must stay. The grey church and greyer tombs look divine with this crimson gleam on them. Nature is now at her evening prayers. She is kneeling before those red hills. I see her prostrate on the great steps of her altar, praying for a fair night for mariners at sea, for travellers in deserts, for lambs on moors, and unfledged birds in woods. Caroline, I see her, and I will tell you what she is like. She is like what Eve was when she and Adam stood alone on earth. And that is not Milton's Eve, surely. Milton's Eve? Milton's Eve, I repeat. No, by the pure mother of God she is not. 
Carrie, we are alone. We may speak what we think. Milton was great, but was he good? His brain was right. How was his heart? He saw heaven. He looked down on hell. He saw Satan and sin his daughter, and death their horrible offspring. Angels serried before him their battalions. The first woman's breast that heaved with life on this world, the long lines of adamantine shields flashed back on his blind eyeballs the unutterable splendor of heaven. Devils gathered their legions in his sight, their dim, discrowned, yielded the daring which could contend with omnipotence, the strength which could bear a thousand years of bondage, the vitality which could feed that vulture death through uncounted ages, the unexhausted life and uncorrupted excellence, sisters to immortality, which, after millenniums of crimes, struggles, and woes, could conceive and bring forth a messiah. The first woman was heaven-born. Vast was the heart when scushed the wellspring and nasturtiums about the latticed window, preparing a cold collation for the rectors, preserves and dulcet creams, puzzled what choice to choose for delicacy best, what order so contrived as not to mix tastes, not well-joined and elegant, but being taste after taste upheld with kindliest change. All very well, too, surely. I would beg to remind him that the first men of the earth were titans, and that Eve was their mother. From her sprang Saturn, Hyperion, Oceanus, she bore Prometheus. Pagan that you are! What does that signify? I say there were giants on the earth in those days, giants that strove to scale heaven, and grand the undegenerate head where rested the consort crown of creation. She coveted an apple and was cheated by a snake, but you have got such a hash of scripture and mythology into your head that there is no making any sense of you. You have not yet told me what you saw kneeling on those hills. I saw, I now see, a woman titan. Her robe of blue air spreads to the outskirts of the heath, where yonder flock is grazing. A veil white as an avalanche sweeps from her head to her feet, and arabesques of lightning flame on its borders. Under her breast I see her zone, purple like that her eyes in, seemed working with unwanted power, leaned against an upright headstone. She fixed her eyes on the deep-burning west and sank into a pleasurable trance. Caroline, going a little apart, paced to and fro beneath the rectory garden wall, dreaming too in her own way. Shirley had mentioned the word mother. That word suggested to Caroline's imagination not the mightiest and mystical parent of Shirley's visions, but a gentle human form, the form she ascribed to her own mother, unknown, unloved, but not unlonged for. Heaven may have faded from her brow when she fell in paradise, but all that is glorious on earth shines there still. She is taking me to her bosom and showing me her heart. Hush, Caroline, you will see her and feel as I do if we are both silent. I will humor your whim, but you will begin talking again ere ten minutes are over. Miss Kildar, on whom the soft excitement of the warm summer evenings through its flesh shines the star of evening, her steady eyes I cannot picture. They are clear, they are deep as lakes, they are lifted and full of worship. They tremble with the softness of love and the luster of prayer. Her forehead has the expanse of a cloud and is paler than the early moon, risen long before dark gathers. She reclines her bosom on the ridge of Stobro Moor. Her mighty hands are joined beneath it. So kneeling, face to face, she speaks with God. That Eve is Jehovah's daughter, as Adam was his son. She is very vague and visionary. Come, Shirley, we ought to go into church. Caroline, I will not. I will stay out here with my mother Eve in these days called nature. I love her, undying, mighty being. Oh, that the day would come when she would remember her child. Oh, that I might know her, and knowing, love her. Such was her aspiration. The longing of her childhood filled her soul again. The desire which many a night had kept her awake in her crib, they wished to be as little noticed as possible, and are seeking their rendezvous at this quiet hour while the people are at church. Did I not say we should see unusual things ere long? Scarcely were sight and sound of the soldiers lost when another and somewhat different disturbance broke the night hush, a child's impatient scream. They looked. A man issued from the church, carrying in his arms an infant, a robust, ruddy little boy of some two years, and which the fear of its fallacy had of late years almost extinguished, relit suddenly, and glowed warm in her heart that her mother might come some happy day, and send for her to her presence, look upon her fondly with loving eyes, and say to her tenderly in a sweet voice, Caroline, my child, I have a home for you. You shall live with me. All the love you have needed, and not yet tasted, from infancy, I have saved for you carefully. Come, it shall cherish you now. A noise on the road roused Caroline from her filial hopes, and surely from her tightened visions. They listened, and heard the tramp of horses. They looked, and saw a glitter through the streets. They caught through the foliage glimpses of martial scarlet, helm shone, plume waved. Silent and orderly, six soldiers rode softly by. The same we saw this afternoon, whispered Shirley. They have been halting somewhere till now, roaring with all the power of his lungs. He had probably just awaked from a church sleep. Two little girls of nine and ten followed. 
The influence of the fresh air and the attraction of some flowers gathered from a grave soon quieted the child. The man sat down with him, dandling him on his knee as tenderly as any woman. The two little girls took their places one on each side. "'Good evening, William,' said Shirley, after due scrutiny of the man. He had seen her before and apparently was waiting to be recognized. He now took off his hat and grinned a smile of pleasure. He was a rough-headed, hard-featured personage, not old, but very weather-beaten. His attire was decent and clean, that of his children singularly neat. It was our old friend Farron. The young ladies approached him. "'You are not going into the church?' he inquired, gazing at them complacently, yet with a mixture of bashfulness in his look, a sentiment not by any means the result of awe of their station, but only of appreciation of their elegance and youth. Before gentlemen, such as Moore or Halstone, for instance, William was often a little dogged. With proud or insolent ladies, too, he was quite unmanageable, sometimes very resentful. But he was most sensible of, most tractable to, good humor and civility. His nature, a stubborn one, was repelled by inflexibility in other natures, for which reason he had never been able to like his former master more, and unconscious of that gentleman's good opinion of himself, and of the service he had secretly rendered him in recommending him as gardener to Mr. York, and by this means to other families in the neighborhood, he continued to harbor a grudge against his austerity. Latterly, he had often worked at Fieldhead. Miss Kildar's frank, hospitable manners were perfectly charming to him. You look knowing, William. How did you find out my regard for Mr. Don? Me? I'm stalled at curates, and so is the wife. They've no manners. They talked poor folk fair as if they thought they were beneath them. Caroline he had known from her childhood. Unconsciously, she was his ideal of a lady. Her gentle mien, step, gestures, her grace of person and attire moved some artistic fibers about his peasant heart. He had a pleasure in looking at her, as he had in examining rare flowers or in seeing pleasant landscapes. Both the ladies liked William. It was their delight to lend him books, to give him plants, and they preferred his conversation far before that of many coarse, hard, pretentious people immeasurably higher in station. Who was speaking, William, when you came out? asked Shirley. A gentleman you set a deal of store on, Miss Shirley, Mr. Dawn. They're allus magnifying their office. It is a pity, but their office could magnify them. There's a gleg light in your in sometimes which betrays you. You look right down scornful sometimes when Mr. Dawn is by. Do you like him yourself, William? I, Miss Shirley, but it does not of sort. I fair hate pride. And that day ye came to our house and called me to the door and offered me five shillings, which I doubt ye could ill spare, for ye've no fortin I know. That day I were fair a rebel, a radical, an insurrectionist, and ye made me so. I thought it shameful that, willing and able as I was to work, but for your children I believe you would rather have starved than gone to the shops without money, and when I wanted to give you something, what a difficulty I had in making you take it. It's partly true, Miss Caroline. Any day I'd rather give than take, especially from such as ye. Look at the differences between us. You're a little young slender lass, and I'm a great strong man. I'm rather more nor twice your age. It is not my part, then, I think, to take from ye, to be under obligations, as they say, to ye. But you are proud in your own way yourself, interposed Caroline. You are what you call house-proud. You like to have everything handsome about you. Sometimes you look as if you were almost too proud to take your wages. When you were out of work, you were too proud to get anything on credit. I still be in such a condition that a young crater about the age of my own eldest lass should think it needful to come and offer me her bit of brass. I suppose you were angry with me, William? I almost was, in a way, but I forgave you very soon. You meant well. Aye, I am proud, and so are ye, but your pride mine is tripe make. But you want me to get a gate of talking. Mr. Malone and Mr. Don is almost too proud to do aught for their sale. We are almost too proud to let anybody do aught for us. Curates can hardly buy to speak a civil word to them they think beneath them. What we call a Yorkshire clean pride, such as Mr. Malone and Mr. Don knows not about. Theirs is mucky pride. Now I shall teach my lasses to be as proud as Miss Shirley there, and my lads to be as proud as my sound, but I dare any of them to be like the curates. I'd lick little Michael. Now, William, be humble enough to tell me truly how you are getting on in the world. Are you well off? Miss Shirley, I am very well off. Since I got into the garden line with Mr. York's help, and since Mr. Hall, another of the right sort, helped my wife to set up a bit of a shop, I've not to complain of. My family has plenty to eat and plenty to wear. My pride makes me find means to save an odd pound now and then against rainy days, for I think I'd die afore I'd come to the parish, and me and mine is content. If I see them show any signs of that feeling. What is the difference, William? 
You know the difference we'll know. We can hardly bide to take an uncivil word from them that thinks themselves above us. But to neighbors is poor yet, I see a great deal of distress. And consequently there is still discontent, I suppose, inquired Miss Kildar. Consequently, you say right, consequently. In course, starving folk cannot be satisfied or settled folk. The country's not in a safe condition. You cannot do much, poor young lass. You've gained your brass. You've done well. If you could transport your tenant, Mr. Moore, to Botany Bay, I'll say so much. But what can be done? What more can I do, for instance? Do? You'd happen do better. Folks hate him. William, for shame! exclaimed Caroline warmly. If folks do hate him, it was not about the people, and is as insincere as Lucifer. I've lived a boon forty years in the world, and I believe that the people will never have any true friends but their son, and them two or three good folk in different stations that is friends to all the world. Human nature, taken in the lump, is not but selfishness. It is but excessive few, it is but just an exception here and there, now and then, such as you two youngins and me, that, being in a different sphere, can understand to one another. It is to their disgrace, not his. Mr. Moore himself hates nobody. He only wants to do his duty and maintain his rights. You are wrong to talk so. I talk as I think. He has a cold, unfeeling heart, yon Moore. But, interposed Shirley, supposing Moore was driven from the country and his mill raised to the ground, would people have more work? They'd have less. I know that, and they know that, and there is many an honest lad driven desperate by the certainty that whichever way he turns he cannot better himself, and there is dishonest men plenty to guide them to the devil, scoundrels that reckon to be the people's friends. For political motives is never to be trusted. They always try to make their inferiors tools. For my own part, I will neither be patronized nor misled for no man's pleasure. I've had overtures made to me lately that I saw were treacherous, and I flung them back in the faces of them that offered them, and be friends without slavishness of one hand or the pride of the other. Them that reckons to be friends to a lower class than their own, you won't tell us what overtures. I will not. It would do no good. It would make no difference. Them they concern can look after themselves. I always look after we're sound, said another voice. Joe Scott had sauntered forth from the church to get a breath of fresh air, and there he stood. I'll warrant you, Joe, observed William, smiling. And I'll warrant my master, was the answer. Young ladies, continued Joe, assuming a lordly air, you'd better go into the house. I wonder what for, inquired Shirley, to whom the overlooker's somewhat pragmatical manners were familiar, and who was often at war with him. For Joe holding superfluous theories about women in general, resented greatly in his secret soul the fact of his master and his master's mill being, in a manner, under petticoat government, and had felt as Wormwood and Gall certain business visits of the heiress to the Hollows counting house. Because there is not a gate that fits women to be concerned in. Indeed, there is prayer and preaching a gate in that church. Are we not concerned in that? Yet have been present neither at the church nor preaching, ma'am, if I have observed right. What I alluded to was politics. William Fern here was touching on that subject, if I'm not mistaken. I should think you'll read the marriages probably, miss, and the murders and the accidents and such like. I read the leading articles, Joe, and the foreign intelligence, and I look over the market prices. In short, I read just what gentlemen read. Joe looked as if he thought this talk was like the chattering of a pie. He replied to it by a disdainful silence. Well, what then? Politics are a habitual study, Joe. Do you know I see a newspaper every day and two of a Sunday? Joe, continued Miss Kildar, I never yet could ascertain properly whether you are a Whig or a Tory. Pray, which party has the honor of your alliance? It is rather difficult to explain where you are not sure to be understood, was Joe's haughty response. But as to being a Tory, I'd as soon be an old woman, or a young one, which is a more flimsier article still. It is the Tories that carries on the war and ruins trade, who had rather a pleasure in teasing the overlooker by persisting in talking on subjects. And if I be of any party, though political parties is all nonsense, I'm of that which is most favorable to peace, and by consequence to the mercantile interests of this here land. So am I, Joe, replied Shirley, with which you opined she, as a woman, had no right to meddle. Partly, at least. I have rather a leaning to the agricultural interest, too, as good reason is, seeing that I don't desire England to be under the feet of France, and that if a share of my income comes from Hollow's Mill, a larger share comes from the landed estate around it. It would not do to take any measures injurious to the farmers, Joe, I think. The dues at this hour is unwholesome for females, observed Joe. If you make that remark out of interest in me, I have merely to assure you that I am impervious to cold. I should not mind taking my turn to watch the mill one of these summer nights, armed with your musket, Joe. 
Joe Scott's chin was always rather prominent, at this speech some inches farther than usual. But to go back to my sheep, she proceeded, clothier and mill owner as I am, besides farmer, I cannot get out of my head a certain idea that we manufacturers and persons of business are sometimes a little, a very little, selfish and short-sighted in our views, and rather too regardless of human suffering, rather heartless in our pursuits of gain. Don't you agree with me, Joe? I cannot argue where I cannot be comprehended, was again the answer. Man of mystery, your master will argue with me sometimes, Joe. He is not so stiff as you are. Maybe not. We've all our own ways. Joe, do you seriously think all the wisdom in the world is lodged in male skulls? I think that women are a kittle and a fraud generation, and I have a great respect for the doctrines delivered in the second chapter of St. Paul's first epistle to Timothy. What doctrines, Joe? Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. What has that to do with the business? interjected Shirley. That smacks of rights of primogeniture. I'll bring it up to Mr. York the first time he invades against those rights. And, continued Joe Scott, Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. More shame to Adam to sin with his eyes open, cried Miss Kildar. To confess the honest truth, Joe, I never was easy in my mind concerning that chapter. It puzzles me. It is very plain, miss. He that runs may read. He may read it in his own fashion, remarked Caroline, now joining in the dialogue for the first time. You allow the right of a private judgment, I suppose, Joe. My certy that I do. I allow and claim it for every line of the holy book. Women may exercise it as well as men. Nay, women is to take their husband's opinions, both in politics and religion. It's wholesomest for them. Oh, oh, exclaimed both Shirley and Caroline. To be sure, no doubt on, persisted the stubborn overlooker. Consider yourself groaned down and cried shame over for such a stupid observation, said Miss Kildar. You might as well say men are to take the opinions of their priests without examinations. Of what value would a religion so adopted be? It would be mere blind, besotted superstition. And what is your reading, Miss Hailstone, of these words of St. Paul's? Hem, I... I account for them in this way. He wrote that chapter for a particular congregation of Christians under peculiar circumstances. And besides, I dare say, if I could read the original Greek, I should find that many of the words have been wrongly translated, perhaps misapprehended altogether. It would be possible, I doubt not, with a little ingenuity, to give the passage quite a contrary turn, to make it say, Let the woman speak out whenever she sees fit to make an objection. It is permitted to a woman to teach and to exercise authority as much as may be. Man, meantime, cannot do better than hold his peace, and so on. Mr. Scott, you are a thoroughly dogmatical person, and always were. I like William better than you. Joe is well enough in his own house, said Shirley. I have seen him as quiet as a lamb at home. There is not a better nor a kinder husband in Briarfield. He does not dogmatize to his wife. That won't wash, miss. I dare say it will. My notions are dyed in faster colors than yours, Joe. My wife is a hard-working, plain woman. Time and trouble is taking all the conceit out of her. But that is not the case with you, young missus. And then you reckon to have so much knowledge. It were only a bit of a sum in practice that our Harry would have settled in two minutes. She couldn't do it. Mr. Moore had to show her how, and when he did show her, she couldn't understand him. Nonsense, Joe. Nay, it's no nonsense, and Miss Shirley there reckons to hearken to a master when he's talking our trade, so attentive-like, as if she followed him word for word, and all were as dear as a lady's looking-glass to her in. And all the while she's peeping and peeping out of the window to see if the mayor stands quiet, and in my thoughts is only superficial sort of vanities you're acquainted with. I can tell, happen a year sin, one day Miss Caroline coming into our counting-house when I were packing up summit behind a great desk and she didn't see me, and she brought a slate with a sum on it to master, and then looking at a bit of a splash on a riding skirt, and then glancing glegly round at where counting house cobwebs and dust, and thinking what mucky folk we are, and what a grand ride she'll have just an hour and only common. She hears no more Mr. Moore's talk, nor if he spake Hebrew. Joe, you are a real slanderer. I would give you your answer, only the people are coming out of church. We must leave you. Man of prejudice, goodbye. William, goodbye. Children, come up to Fieldhead tomorrow, and you shall choose what you like best out of Mrs. Gill's storeroom. To lend you these. 
that she shall not. Of what need I be afraid in my own parish? I would walk from Fieldhead to the church any fine midsummer night, three hours later than this, for the mere pleasure of seeing the stars and the chance of meeting a fairy. But just wait till the crowd is cleared away. Agreed. There are the five Mrs. Armitage streaming by. Here comes Mrs. Sykes's Faden. There'll be just light enough to show me the way home, said Miss Kildar as she prepared to take leave of Caroline at the rectory garden door. You must not go alone, Shirley. Fanny shall accompany you. Will you favor Caroline so far as to be her guest for one night? Will you stay here instead of going back to Fieldhead? And what will Mrs. Pryor do? She expects me home. I will send her word. Come, make up your mind to stay. It grows late. The dew falls heavily. You and Caroline will enjoy each other's society, I doubt not. I promise you, then, to stay with Caroline, replied Shirley. As you say, we shall enjoy each other's society. We will not be separated tonight. Now, rejoin your old friend and fear nothing for us. If there should chance to be any disturbance in the night, Captain, if you should hear the picking of a lock, the cutting out of a pane of glass, a stealthy tread of steps about the house, and I need not fear to tell you, who bear a well-tempered, meddlesome heart under your girl's ribbon sash, that such little incidents are very possible in the present time, what would you do? Don't know. Faint, perhaps. Fall down and have to be picked up again. But, Doctor, if you assign me the post of honor, you must give me arms. What weapons are there in your stronghold? You could not wield a sword. No, I could manage the carving knife better. You will find a good one on the dining room sideboard, a lady's knife, light to handle, and as sharp pointed as a poniard. Mrs. Burtwistle's car. I don't wish to go through the ceremony of bidding them all goodbye, so we will step into the garden and take shelter amongst the laburnums for an instant. The rectors, their curates, and their church wardens now issued from the church porch. There was a great confabulation, shaking of hands, congratulation on speeches, recommendation to be careful of the night air, etc. By degrees, the throng dispersed, the carriages drove off. Miss Kildar was just emerging from her flowery refuge when Mr. Halstone entered the garden and met her. Oh, I want you! he said. I'm afraid you are already gone. Caroline, come here. Caroline came, expecting, as Shirley did, a lecture on not having been visible at church. Other subjects, however, occupied the rector's mind. I shall not sleep at home tonight, he continued. I have just met with an old friend and promised to accompany him. I shall return probably about noon tomorrow. Thomas, the clerk, is engaged. Mr. Wynne's close carriage. And I cannot get him to sleep in the house, as I usually do when I am absent for a night. Now? Now? interrupted Shirley. You want me as a gentleman, the first gentleman in Briarfield, in short, to supply your place, be master of the rectory, and guardian of your niece and maids while you are away. Exactly, Captain. I thought the post would suit you. It will suit Caroline, but you must give me a brace of pistols. I know you have pistols. I have two pairs. One pair I can place at your disposal. You will find them suspended over the mantelpiece of my study in cloth cases. Loaded? Yes, but not on the cock. Cock them before you go to bed. It is paying you a great compliment, Captain. Clear air favored the kindling of the stars. Were you one of the awkward squad, you should not have them. I will take care. You need delay no longer, Mr. Hellstone. You may go now. He is gracious to lend me his pistols, she remarked as the rector passed out of the garden gate. But come, Lena, she continued, let us go in and have some supper. I was too much vexed at tea with the vicinage of Mr. Sam Wynne to be able to eat, and now I am really hungry. Entering the house, they repaired to the darkened dining room, through the open windows of which apartment stole the evening air, bearing the perfume of flowers from the garden, the very distant sound of far retreating steps from the road, and a soft, vague murmur for the sultry room. In returning, she half-opened a drawer, which stood on the sideboard, the exhalation from the blossoms being somewhat too powerful for whose origin Caroline explained by the remark, uttered as she stood listening at the casement, Surely, I hear the beck in the hollow. Then she rang the bell, asked for a candle and some bread and milk, Miss Kildar's usual supper and her own. Fanny, when she brought in the tray, would have closed the windows and the shutters, but was requested to desist for the present. The twilight was too calm, its breath too balmy to be yet excluded. They took their meal in silence. Caroline rose once to remove to the window sill a glass of flowers, and took from it something that glittered clear and keen in her hand. You assigned this to me then, Shirley, did you? It is bright, keen-edged, finely tapered. It is dangerous looking. I never yet felt the impulse which could move me to direct this against a fellow creature. It is difficult to fancy what circumstances could nerve my arm to strike home with this long knife. I should hate to do it, replied Shirley, but I think I could do it if goaded by certain exigencies which I can imagine. 
and Miss Kildar quietly sipped her glass of new milk, looking somewhat thoughtful and a little pale. Though indeed, when did she not look pale? She was never florid. The milk sipped and the bread eaten, Fanny was again summoned. She and Eliza were recommended to go to bed, which they were quite willing to do, being wary of the day's exertions, of much cutting of currant buns and filling of urns and teapots and running backwards and forwards with trays. Ere long, the maid's chamber door was heard to close. Caroline took a candle and went quietly all over the house, seeing that every window was fast and every door barred. She did not even evade the haunted back kitchen nor the vault-like cellars, and Hollow's copse as distinctly as if it ran below the churchyard wall. I am glad it is so still a night. A moaning wind or rushing rain would vex me to fever just now. Why, Shirley? There is neither spirit nor flesh in the house at present, she said, which should not be there. It is now near eleven o'clock, fully bedtime. Yet I would rather sit up a little longer if you do not object, Shirley. Here, she continued, I have brought the brace of pistols from my uncle's study. You may examine them at your leisure. She placed them on the table before her friend. Why would you rather sit up longer? asked Miss Kildar, taking up the firearms, examining them, and again laying them down. Because I have a strange, excited feeling in my heart. So have I. Is this state of sleeplessness and restlessness caused by something electrical in the air, I wonder? No, the sky is clear, the star is numberless, it is a fine night. But very still, I hear the water fret over its stony bed. These visited, she returned. Because it would baffle my efforts to listen. Do you listen towards the hollow? Yes, it is the only quarter whence we can hear a sound just now. The only one, surely. They both sat near the window, and both leaned their arms on the sill, and both inclined their heads towards the open lattice. They saw each other's young faces by the starlight, and that dim June twilight, which does not wholly fade from the west till dawn begins to break in the east. Mr. Halston thinks we have no idea which way he has gone, murmured Miss Kildar, nor on what errand, nor with what expectations, nor how prepared, but I guess much, do not you? I guess something. All those gentlemen, your cousin Moore included, think that you and I are now asleep in our beds, unconscious. Caring nothing about them, hoping and fearing nothing for them, added Caroline. Both kept silence for full half an hour. The night was silent, too. Only the church clock measured its course by quarters. Some words were interchanged about the chill in the air. They wrapped their scarves closer around them, resumed their bonnets, which they had removed, and again watched. Towards midnight, the teasing, monotonous bark of the house dog disturbed the quietude of their vigil. Caroline rose and made her way noiselessly through the dark passages to the kitchen, intending to appease him with a piece of bread. She succeeded. On returning to the dining room, she found it all dark, Miss Kildar having extinguished the candle. The outline of her shape was visible near the still open window, leaning out. Miss Halston asked no questions. She stole to her side. The dog recommenced barking furiously. Suddenly he stopped and seemed to listen. The occupants of the dining room listened too, and not merely now to the flow of the mill stream. There was a nearer, though a muffled, sound on the road below the churchyard, a measured, beating, approaching sound, a dull tramp of marching feet. It grew near. Those who listened by degrees comprehended its extent. It was not the tread of two, nor of a dozen, nor of a score of men. It was the tread of hundreds. They could see nothing. The high shrubs of the garden formed a leafy screen between them and the road. To hear, however, was not enough, and this they felt as the troop trod forwards, and seemed actually passing the rectory. They felt it more when a human voice, though that voice spoke but one word, broke the hush of the night. HALT! A halt followed. The march was arrested. Then came a low conference. She glanced at the weapon on the sideboard, but left it behind her, and presently stood at her friend's side. They dared not look over the wall for fear of being seen. They were obliged to crouch behind it. They heard these words. It looks a rambling old building. Who lives in it besides the damned parson? Of which no words was distinguishable from the dining room. We must hear this, said Shirley. She turned, took her pistols from the table, silently passed out the middle window of the dining room, which was, in fact, a glass door, stole down the walk to the garden wall, and stood listening under the lilacs. Caroline would not have quitted the house had she been alone, but where Shirley went, she would go. Only three women, his niece and two servants. Do you know where they sleep? The last is behind, the niece in a front room. And Hellstone? Yonder is his chamber. He was burning a light, but I see none now. Where would she get in? If I were ordered to do his job, and he deserves it, I'd try yon long window. It opens to the dining room. I could grope my way upstairs, and I know his chamber. How would you manage about the women folk? Let them alone, except they shrieked, and then I'd soon quiet them. I could wish to find the old chap asleep. If he waked, he'd be dangerous. Has he arms? Firearms, allus, and allus loadened. 
Then you're a fool to stop us here. A shot would give the alarm. More would be on us before we could turn round. We should miss our main object. You might go on, I tell you. I'd engage Hellstone alone. A pause. One of the party dropped some weapon which rang on the stone causeway. At this sound, the rectory dog barked again furiously. Fiercely. That spoils all, said the voice. He'll awake. A noise like that might rouse the dead. You did not say there was a dog. Damn you. Forward. Forward they went. Tramp, tramp. With mustering, manifold, slow filing tread. They were gone. Shirley stood erect, looked over the wall, along the road. Not a soul remains, she said. She stood amused. Thank God, was the next observation. Caroline repeated the ejaculation, not in so steady a tone. She was trembling much. Her heart was beating fast and thick. Her face was cold, her forehead damp. Thank God for us, she reiterated. But what will happen elsewhere? They have passed us by that they may make sure of others. They have done well, returned Shirley with composure. The others will defend themselves. They can do it. They are prepared for them. With us, it is otherwise. My finger was on the trigger of this pistol. I was quite ready to give that man, if he had entered, such a greeting as he little calculated on. But behind him followed three hundred. I had neither three hundred hands nor three hundred weapons. I could not have effectually protected either you, myself, or the two poor women asleep under that roof. Therefore, I again earnestly thank God for insult and peril escaped. After a second pause, she continued, What is it my duty and wisdom to do next? Not to stay here inactive, I am glad to say, but of course, to walk over to the hollow. To the hollow, Shirley. To the hollow. Will you go with me? Where those men are gone. They have taken the highway. We should not encounter them. The road over the fields is as safe, silent, and solitary as a pass through the air would be. Will you go? Yes, was the answer, given mechanically, not because the speaker wished or was prepared to go, or indeed was otherwise than scared at the prospect of going, but because she felt she could not abandon Shirley. Then we must fasten up these windows and leave all as secure as we can behind us. Do you know what we are going for, Carrie? Yes. No. Because you wish it. Is that all? Shirley was sure-footed and agile. She could spring like a deer when she chose. Caroline, more timid and less dexterous, fell once or twice and bruised herself, but she rose again directly, saying she was not hurt. A quick-set hedge bounded the last field. They lost time in seeking a gap in it. The aperture, when found, was narrow, but they worked their way through. The long hair, the tender skin, the silks and the muslin suffered, but what was chiefly regretted was the impediment this difficulty had caused to speed. On the other side they met the beck, flowing deep in a rough bed. Do not fear that I shall not have breath to run as fast as you can possibly run, Shirley. Take my hand. Let us go straight across the fields. But you cannot climb walls? Tonight I can. You are afraid of hedges and the beck which we will be forced to cross. I can cross it. And are you so obedient to a mere capacha mine? What a docile wife you would make to a stern husband. The moon's face is not whiter than yours at this moment, and the aspen at the gate does not tremble more than your busy fingers. And so tractable and terror-struck and dismayed and devoted, you would follow me into the thick of real danger. Carrie, let me give your fidelity a motive. We are going for Moore's sake, to see if we can be of use to him, to make an effort to warn him of what is coming. To be sure, I am a blind, weak fool, and you are acute and sensible, Shirley. I will go with you. I will gladly go with you. I do not doubt it. You would die blindly and meekly for me, but you would intelligently and gladly die for Moore. But, in truth, there is no question of death tonight. We run no risk at all. Caroline rapidly closed shutter and lattice. They started. They ran. Many a wall checked, but did not baffle them. At this point, an arrow plank formed the only bridge across it. Shirley had trodden the plank successfully and fearlessly many a time. Caroline had never yet dared to risk the transit. "'I will carry you across,' said Miss Kildar. "'You are light, and I am not weak. Let me try.' "'If I fall in, you may fish me out,' was the answer, as a grateful squeeze compressed her hand. Caroline, without pausing, trod forward on the trembling plank as if it were a continuation of the firm turf. Shirley, who followed, did not cross it more resolutely or safely. In their present humor, on their present errand, a strong and foaming channel would have been a barrier to neither. At the moment, they were above the control either of fire or water.' All still grow more, a light and a glow of bonfires would not have stopped them, nor would calder or air thundering in flood. Yet one sound made them pause. Scarce had they set foot on the solid opposite bank, further off burst a like note in the south. Within the space of three minutes, similar signals boomed in the east and west. I thought we were dead at the first explosion, observed Shirley, drawing a long breath. 
I felt myself hit in the temples, and I concluded your heart was pierced. But the reiterated voice was an explanation. Those are signals. It is their way. The attack must be near. We should have had wings. Our feet have not borne us swiftly enough. When a shot split the air from the north, one second lapsed. I overcome the various obstacles which embarrassed the shortcut across the field. The road, which should have been white, was dark with a moving mass. The rioters were assembled in front of the closed yard gates, and the single figure stood within, apparently addressing them. The mill itself was perfectly black and still. There was neither life, light, nor motion around it. Surely he is prepared. Surely that is not more meeting them alone, whispered Shirley. It is. We must go to him. I will go to him. That you will not. Why did I come, then? I came only for him. I shall join him. Fortunately, it is out of your power. There is no entrance to the yard. There is a small entrance at the back, besides the gates in the front. It opens by a secret method, which I know. I will try it. Not with my leave. Miss Kildar clasped her round the waist with both arms and held her back. Not one step shall you stir, she went on authoritatively. At this moment, Moore would be both shocked and embarrassed if he saw either you or me. Men never want women near them in time of real danger. I would not trouble. I would help him, was the reply. How? By inspiring him with heroism. Pooh, these are not the days of chivalry. It is not a tilted a tournament we are going to behold, but a struggle about money and food and life. It is natural that I should be at his side. As a queen of his heart, his mill is his lady love, Carrie. Backed by his factory and his frames, he has all the encouragement he wants or can know. It is not for love or beauty, but for ledger and broadcloth. He is going to break a spear. A portion of the cuffs was now clear. When they emerged from it, the mill lay just below them. They could look down upon the buildings, the yard. They could see the road beyond. And the first glance in that direction told Shirley she was right in her conjecture. They were already too late to give warning. It had taken more time than they calculated on. Don't be sentimental. Robert is not so. I could help him. I will seek him. Off, then. I let you go. Seek more. You'll not find him. She loosened her hold. Caroline sped like leveled shaft from bent bow. After her rang a jesting, jibing laugh. Look well, there is no mistake, was the warning given. But there was a mistake. Miss Helston paused, hesitated, gazed. The figure had suddenly retreated from the gate and was running back hastily to the mill. Make haste, Lena, cried Shirley. Meet him before he enters. Caroline slowly returned. It is not Robert, she said. It has neither his height, form, nor bearing. I saw it was not Robert when I let you go. How could you imagine it? It is a shabby little figure of a private officer. They had him posted as sentinel. He is safe in the mill now. I saw the door open and admit him. My mind grows easier. Robert is prepared. Our warning would have been superfluous, and now I am thankful we came too late to give it. It has saved us the trouble of a scene. How fine to have entered the counting house, tout à perdu, and to have found oneself in presence of Messrs. Armitage and Ramsden smoking, Malone swaggering, your uncle sneering, Mr. Sykes sipping a cordial, and more himself, in his cold man-of-business vein. I am glad we missed it all. I wonder if there are many in the mill, Shirley. Plenty to defend it. The soldiers we have twice seen today were going there, no doubt, and the group we noticed surrounding your cousin in the field will be with him now. Shirley, Shirley, the gates are down! That crash was like the felling of great trees. What are they doing now, Shirley? What is that noise? Hatchets and crowbars against the yard gates. They are forcing them. Are you afraid? No, but my heart throbs fast. I have a difficulty in standing. I will sit down. Do you feel unmoved? Hardly that, but I am glad I came. We shall see what transpires with our own eyes. We are on the spot, and none know it. Instead of amazing the curate, the clothier, and the corn dealer with a romantic rush on the stage, we stand alone with the friendly night, its mute stars, and these whispering trees, whose report our friends will not come together. Now they are pouring through. I could be turned to some account. They come on, cried Shirley. How steadily they march in. There is discipline in their ranks. I would not say there is courage. Hundreds against tens are no proof of that quality. But, she dropped her voice, there is suffering and desperation enough amongst them. These goads will urge them forwards. Forwards against Robert, and they hate him. Surely they will break down the mill doors as they have broken the gate. What can Robert do against so many? Would to God I were a little nearer him, could hear him speak, could speak to him. With my will, my longing to serve him, I could not be a useless burden in his way. Is there much danger they will win the day? We shall see. Moore and Halstone are of Earth's first blood. No bunglers, no cravens. A crash, smash, shiver stopped their whispers. 
A simultaneously hurled volley of stones had saluted the broad front of the mill, with all its windows, and now every pane of every lattice lay in shattered and pounded fragments. A yell followed this demonstration. A rioter's yell. A north of England, a Yorkshire, a west riding, a west riding clothing district of Yorkshire, rioter's yell. You never heard that sound, perhaps, reader. So much the better for your ears. Perhaps for your heart, since if it rends the air and hate to yourself, or to the men your principles you approve, the interests to which you wish well, wrath weakens to the cry of hate. The lion shakes his mane and rises to the howl of the hyena. Cast stands up, ireful against cast, and the indignant, wronged spirit of the middle rank bears down in zeal and scorn on the famished and furious mass of the operative class. It is difficult to be tolerant, difficult to be just in such moments. Caroline rose. Shirley put her arm round her. They stood together as still as the straight stems of two trees. That yell was a long one, and when it ceased, the night was yet full of the swaying and murmuring of a crowd. I would stake all I have that he is as little alone as he is alarmed, responded Shirley. Shots were discharged by the rioters. Had the defenders waited for the signal? It seemed so. The hitherto inert and passive mill woke. Fire flashed from its empty window frames. A volley of musketry peeled sharp through the hollow. What next? was the question of the listeners. Nothing came yet. The mill remained mute as a mausoleum. He cannot be alone, whispered Caroline. And there was struggling, rushing, trampling, and shouting between. The aim of the assailants seemed to be to enter the mill, that of the defendants to beat them off. They heard the rebel leader cry, To the back, lads! They heard a voice retort, Come round, we will meet you! To the counting house, was the order again. Welcome, we shall have you there, was the response, and accordingly the fiercest blaze that had yet glowed, the loudest rattle that had yet been heard, burst from the counting house front when the mass of rioters rushed up to it. The voice that had spoken was Moore's own voice. They could tell by its tones that his soul was now warm with the conflict. They could guess that the fighting animal was roused in every one of these men, and every one of these men there struggling together. Moore speaks at last, said Shirley, and he seems to have the gift of tongues. That was not a single voice. He has been forbearing. No one can accuse him of rashness, alleged Caroline. Their discharge preceded his. They broke his gates and his windows. They fired at his garrison before he repelled them. What was going on now? It seemed difficult in the darkness to distinguish, but something terrible, a still renewing tumult, was obvious. Fierce attacks, desperate repulses. The mill yard, the mill itself, was full of battle movements. There was scarcely any cessation now of the discharge of firearms, and was for the time quite paramount above the rational human being. How and when would it end? was the demand, throbbing in their throbbing pulses. Would a juncture arise in which they could be useful, was what they waited to see, for though Shirley put off their too late arrival with a jest, and was ever ready to satirize her own or any other person's enthusiasm, she would have given a farm of her best land for a chance of rendering good service. Both the girls felt their faces glow and their pulses throb. Both knew they would do no good by rushing down into the melee. They desired neither to deal nor to receive blows, but they could not have run away. Caroline no more than Shirley. They could not have fainted. They could not have taken their eyes from the dim, terrible scene, from the massive cloud of smoke, the musket lightning, for the world. The chance was not vouchsafed for her. The looked-for juncture never came. It was not likely. Moore had expected this attack for days, perhaps weeks. He was prepared for it at every point. He had fortified and garrisoned his mill, which in itself was a strong building. He was a cool, brave man. He stood to the defense with unflinching firmness. Those who were with him caught his spirit and copied his demeanor. The rioters had never been so met before. At other mills, they had attacked, they had found no resistance. An organized, resolute defense was what they never dreamed of encountering. When their leaders saw the steady fire kept up from the mill, witnessed the composure and determination of its owner, heard themselves coolly defied and invited on to death, and beheld their men falling wounded round them, they felt that nothing was to be done here. In haste, they mustered their forces, drew them away from the building. A roll was called over, in which the men answered to figures instead of names. They dispersed wide over the fields, leaving silence and ruin behind them. The attack, from its commencement to its termination, had not occupied an hour. Day was by this time approaching, the west was dim, the east beginning to gleam. It would have seemed that the girls who had watched this conflict would now wish to hasten to the victors, on whose side all their interest had been enlisted, but they only very cautiously approached the now battered mill, and when suddenly a number of soldiers and gentlemen appeared at the great door opening into the yard, they quickly stepped aside into a shed, the deposit of old iron and timber, whence they could see without being seen. 
It was no cheering spectacle. These premises were now a mere blot of desolation on the fresh front of the summer dawn. All the copse up the hollow was shady and dewy. The hill at its head was green, but just here, in the center of the sweet glen, discord, broken loose in the night from control, had beaten the ground with its stamping hoofs and left it waste and pulverized. The mill yawned all ruinous with unglazed frames. The yard was thickly bestrown with stones and brickbats, and close under the mill, with the glittering fragments of the shattered windows, muskets and other weapons lay here and there. Is that your uncle? It is, and there is Mr. Malone, and, oh, surely there is Robert! Well, resuming her former tone, don't squeeze your fingers quite into my hand. I see. There is nothing wonderful in that. We knew he, at least, was here, whoever might be absent. He is coming here towards us, surely! Towards the pump, that is to say, for the purpose of washing his hands in his forehead, which has got a scratch, I perceive. He bleeds, surely. Don't hold me. I must go. Not a step. He is hurt, surely. Fiddlestick. But I must go to him. More than one deep crimson stain was visible on the gravel. A human body lay quiet on its face near the gates, and five or six wounded men writhed and moaned in the bloody dust. Miss Kildar's countenance changed at this view. It was the aftertaste of the battle, death and pain replacing excitement and exertion. It was the blackness the bright fire leaves when its blaze is sunk. Its warmth failed and its glow faded. This is what I wish to prevent, she said, in a voice whose cadence betrayed the altered impulse of her heart. But you could not prevent it. You did your best. It was in vain, said Caroline comfortingly. Don't grieve, Shirley. I am sorry for those poor fellows, was the answer, while the spark in her glance dissolved to do. Are any within the mill hurt, I wonder? I wish to go so much. I cannot bear to be restrained. What for? To speak to him, to ask how he is and what I can do for him. To tease and annoy him, to make a spectacle of yourself and him before those soldiers, Mr. Malone, your uncle, etc. Would he like it, thank you? Would you like to remember it a week hence? Am I always to be curbed and kept down? demanded Caroline a little passionately. For his sake, yes, and still more for your own. I tell you, if you showed yourself now, you would repent it an hour hence, and so would Robert. You think he would not like it, surely? Far less than he would like our stopping him to say good night, which you were so sore about. But that was all play. There was no danger. And this is serious work. He must be unmolested. I only wish to go to him because he is my cousin. You understand? I quite understand. But now, watch him. He has bathed his forehead, and the blood has ceased trickling. His heart is really a mere graze. I can see it from hence. He's going to look after the wounded men. Accordingly, Mr. Moore and Mr. Halstone went round the yard, examining each prostrate form. They then gave directions to have the wounded taken up and carried into the mill. This duty being performed, Joe Scott was ordered to saddle his master's horse and Mr. Halstone's pony, and the two gentlemen rode away full gallop to seek surgical aid in different directions. Caroline was not yet pacified. Surely, surely, I should have liked to speak one word to him before he went, she murmured. I never will try to push myself on him. I thank you for restraining me just now, while the tears gathered glittering in her eyes. Why do you cry, Lena? asked Miss Kildar a little sternly. You ought to be glad instead of sorry. Robert has escaped any serious harm. He is victorious. He has been cool and brave in combat. He is now considerate in triumph. Is this a time? Are these causes for weeping? You do not know what I have in my heart, pleaded the other. What pain, what distraction, nor whence it arises. I can understand that you should exult in Robert's greatness and goodness. So do I, in one sense, but in another I feel so miserable. I am too far removed from him. I used to be nearer. Let me alone, Shirley. Do let me cry a few minutes. It relieves me. Miss Kildar, feeling her tremble in every limb, ceased to expostulate with her. She went out of the shed and left her to weep in peace. It was the best plan. In a few minutes, Caroline rejoined her, much calmer. She said, with her natural, docile, gentle manner, Come, Shirley, we will go home now. I promise not to try to see Robert again till he asks for me. I did it with good intention, returned Miss Kildar. Now, dear Lena, she continued, let us turn our faces to the cool morning breeze and walk very quietly back to the rectory. We will steal in as we stole out. None shall know where we have been or what we have seen tonight. Neither taunt nor misconstruction can consequently molest us. Tomorrow we will see Robert and be of good cheer, but I will say no more, lest I should begin to cry too. I seem hard towards you, but I am not so. Perfect health was Shirley's enviable portion. Though warm-hearted and sympathetic, she was not nervous. Powerful emotions could rouse and sway without exhausting her spirit. Chapter 20. Tomorrow.
The two girls met no living soul on their way back to the rectory. They let themselves in noisily. They stole upstairs unheard. The breaking morning gave them what light they needed. Shirley sought her couch immediately, and though the room was strange, for she had never slept at the rectory before, and though the recent scene was one unparalleled for excitement and terror by any it had hitherto been her lot to witness, yet scarce was her head laid on the pillow ere a deep, refreshing sleep closed her eyes and calmed her senses. Life wastes fast in such vigils as Caroline had of late but too often kept. Vigils during which the mind, having no pleasant food to nourish it, no manna of hope, no hived honey of joyous memories, tries to live on the meager diet of wishes, and failing to derive thence either delight or support, and feeling itself ready to perish with craving want, turns to philosophy, to resolution, to resignation, calls on all these gods for aid, calls vainly, is unheard, unhelped, and languishes. Caroline was a Christian, therefore, in trouble, she framed many a prayer after the Christian creed, preferred it with deep earnestness, begged for patience, strength, and relief. This world, however, we all know, is the scene of trial and probation, and, for any favorable result her petitions had yet wrought, it seemed to her they were unheard and unaccepted. She believed sometimes that God had turned his face from her. At moments she was a Calvinist, and sinking into the gulf of religious despair, the tempest troubled and shook her while it lasted, but it left her elasticity unbent, as every day brought her stimulating emotion, and her freshness quite unblighted. So every night yielded her recreating rest. Caroline now watched her sleeping, and read the serenity of her mind and the beauty of her happy countenance. For herself, being of a different temperament, she could not sleep. The commonplace excitement of the tea-drinking and school-gathering would alone have sufficed to make her restless all night. The effect of the terrible drama which had just been enacted before her eyes was not likely to quit her for days. It was vain even to try to retain a recumbent posture. She sat up by Shirley's side, counting the slow minutes and watching the June sun mount the heavens. She saw darkening over her the doom of reprobation. Most people have had a period or periods in their lives when they have felt thus forsaken. When, having long hoped against hope and still seeing the day of fruition deferred, their hearts have truly sickened within them. This is a terrible hour, but it is often that darkest point which precedes the rise of day. That turn of the year when the icy January wind carries over the waste at once the dirge of departing winter and the prophecy of coming spring. The perishing birds, however, cannot thus understand the blast before which they shiver, and as little can the suffering soul recognize, in the climax of its affliction, the dawn of its deliverance. Yet, let whoever grieves still cling fast to love and faith in God. God will never deceive, never finally desert him. Whom he loveth, he chasteneth. These words are true, and should not be forgotten. The household was astir at last. The servants were up. The shutters were opened below. Caroline, as she quitted the couch, and this is the way men deal with women, still concealing danger from them, thinking, I suppose, to spare them pain. Today I shall have much to say to more, were Shirley's first words, and you could see in her face that life was full of interest, expectation, and occupation for her. He will have to undergo cross-examination, she added, which had been but a thorny one to her, felt that revival of spirits which the return of day, of action, gives to all but the wholly despairing are actually dying. She dressed herself as usual, carefully, trying so to arrange her hair and attire that nothing of the forlornness she felt at heart should be visible externally. She looked as fresh as Shirley when both were dressed, only that Miss Kildar's eyes were lively and Miss Hellstone's languid. I dare say he thinks he has outwitted me cleverly. They imagined we little knew where they were tonight. We know they little conjectured where we were. Men, I believe, fancy women's minds something like those of children. Now that is a mistake. This was said as she stood at the glass, training her naturally waved hair into curls by twining it round her fingers. She took up the theme again five minutes later, as Caroline fastened her dress and clasped her girdle. If men could see us as we really are, they would be a little amazed. But the cleverest, the acutest men are often under an illusion about women. They do not read them in a true light. They misapprehend them, both for good and evil. Their good woman is a queer thing, half doll, half angel. Their bad woman almost always a fiend. Then to hear them fall into ecstasies with each other's creations, worshipping the heroine of such a poem, novel, drama, thinking it fine, divine. Fine and divine it may be, but often quite artificial. False is the rose in my best bonnet there. If I spoke all I think on this point, if I gave my real opinion of some first-rate female characters and first-rate works, where should I be? Dead under a cairn of avenging stones in half an hour. Surely you chatter so, I can't fasten you. Be still. And after all, authors' heroines are almost as good as authoresses' heroes. Not at all. Women read men more truly than men read women. I'll prove that in a magazine paper some day when I've time. Only it will never be inserted. It will be declined with thanks and left for me at the publishers. 
To be sure, you could not write cleverly enough. You don't know enough. You are not learned, surely. God knows I can't contradict you, Carrie. I'm as ignorant as a stone. There's one comfort, however. You are not much better. They descended to breakfast. I wonder how Mrs. Pryor and Hortense Moore have passed the night, said Caroline as she made the coffee. Selfish being that I am, I never thought of either of them till just now. They have heard all the tumult, Fieldhead and the cottage are so near, and Hortense is timid in such matters, so no doubt is Mrs. Pryor. Take my word for it, Lena. Moore will have contrived to get his sister out of the way. She went home with Miss Mann. He will have courted her there for the night. As to Mrs. Pryor, I own I am uneasy about her, but another half hour we will be with her. By this time, the news of what had happened at the hollow was spread all over the neighborhood. Fanny, who had been to Fieldhead to fetch the milk, returned in panting haste with tidings that there had been a battle in the night at Mr. Moore's mill, and that some twenty men were killed. Eliza, during Fanny's absence, had been apprised by the butcher's boy that the mill was burnt to the ground. Both women rushed into the parlor to announce these terrible facts to the ladies, terminating their clear and accurate narrative by the assertion that they were sure Master must have been in it all. He and Thomas, the clerk, they were confident, must have gone last night to join Mr. Moore and the soldiers. Mr. Malone, too, had not been heard of at his lodging since yesterday afternoon, and Joe Scott's wife and family were in the greatest darkness, wondering what had become of their head. Scarcely was this information imparted when a knock at the kitchen door announced the field had errand boy, arriving in hot haste, bearing a billet for Mrs. Pryor. It was hurriedly written and urged Miss Kildar to return directly, as the neighborhood in the house seemed likely to be all in confusion, and orders would have to be given which the mistress of the hall alone could regulate. In a postscript, it was entreated that Miss Hellstone might not be left alone at the rectory. She had better, it was suggested, accompany Miss Kildar. There are not two opinions on that head, said Shirley, as she tied on her own bonnet, and then ran to fetch Caroline's. But what will Fanny and Eliza do? And if my uncle returns? Your uncle will not return yet. He has other fish to fry. He will be galloping backwards and forwards from Briarfield to Stobro all day, rousing the magistrates in the courthouse and the officers at the barracks, and Fanny and Eliza can have in Joe Scott's and the clerk's wives to bear them company. Besides, of course, there is no real danger to be apprehended now. Weeks will elapse before the rioters can again rally, or plan any other attempt, and I am much mistaken if Moore and Mr. Hellstone will not take advantage of last night's outbreak to quell them altogether. Craven cows, reared on the sweet herbage and clear waters of Bonnie Airedale, and very proud she was of their sleek aspect and high condition. Seeing now the state of matters, and that it was desirable to effect a clearance of the premises, Shirley stepped in amongst the gossiping groups. She bade them good morning with a certain frank, tranquil ease, the natural characteristic of her manner when she addressed numbers, especially if those numbers belonged to the working class. She was cooler amongst her equals, and rather proud to those above her. We're in a war and are some out of bonus, are we? She then asked them if they had all got their milk measured out, and understanding that they had, she further observed that she wondered what they were waiting for then. We're just talking a bit over this battle that has been at your mill, mistress, replied a man. Talking a bit? Just like you, said Shirley. It is a queer thing. All the world is so fond of talking over events. You talk if anybody dies suddenly. You talk if a fire breaks out. You talk if a mill owner fails. You talk if he's murdered. What good does your talking do? There is nothing the lower orders like better than a little downright good-humored rating. Flattery they scorn very much. Honest abuse they enjoy. They call it speaking plainly, and take a sincere delight in being the objects thereof. The homely harshness of Miss Kildar's salutation won her the ear of the whole throng in a second. They will frighten the authorities of Stilbro into energetic measures. I only hope they will not be too severe, not pursue the discomfited too relentlessly. Robert would not be cruel. We saw that last night, said Caroline. But he will be hard, retorted Shirley, and so will your uncle. As they hurried along the meadow and plantation path to Fieldhead, they saw the distant highway already alive with an unwanted flow of equestrians and pedestrians, tending in the direction of the usually solitary hollow. On reaching the hall, they found the backyard gates open, and the court and kitchen seemed crowded with excited milk fetchers, men, women, and children, whom Mrs. Gale, the housekeeper, appeared vainly persuading to take their milk cans and depart. It is, or was, by the by, the custom in the north of England for the cottagers on a country squire's estate to receive their supply of milk and butter from the dairy of the manor house, on whose pastures a herd of milch kine were usually fed for the convenience of the neighborhood. Miss Kildar owned such a herd, all deep dewlapped, asked a man smiling. You who have to earn your bread with the sweat of your brow are quite inexcusable. That's queer, mistress. Said we never have a holiday because we work hard. Nor a whit better. You that should be models of industry are just as gossip-loving as the idol. 
Fine rich people that have nothing to do may be partly excused for trifling their time away. Never, was the prompt answer. Unless, added the mistress, with a smile that half bellied the severity of her speech, unless you knew how to make a better use of it than to get together over rum and tea if you were women, or over beer and pipes if you were men, and talk scandal at your neighbor's expense. Come, friends, she added, changing at once from bluntness to courtesy. Oblige me by taking your cans and going home. I expect several persons to call today, and it will be inconvenient to have the avenues to the house crowded. Yorkshire people are as yielding to persuasion as they are stubborn against compulsion. The yard was clear in five minutes. Thank you, and goodbye to you, friends, said Shirley, as she closed the gates on a quiet court. Now let me hear the most refined of cockneys presume to find fault with Yorkshire manners. Taken as they ought to be, the majority of the lads and lasses of the West Riding are gentlemen and ladies, every inch of them. It is only against the weak affectation and futile pomposity of a would-be aristocrat they turn mutinous. Entering by the back way, the young ladies passed through the kitchen, or house as the inner kitchen is called, to the hall. Mrs. Pryor came running down the oak staircase to meet them. She was all unnerved. Her naturally sanguine complexion was pale. Her usually placid, though timid, blue eye was wandering, unsettled, alarmed. She did not, however, break out into any exclamations or hurried narrative of what had happened. Her predominant feeling had been in the course of the night, and was now this morning, a sense of dissatisfaction with herself that she could not feel firmer, cooler, more equal to the demands of the occasion. The house has been in a great bustle all the morning with people coming and going. Servants have applied to me for orders and directions, which I really did not feel warranted in giving. Mr. Moore has, I believe, sent up for refreshments for the soldiers and others engaged in the defense, for some conveniences also for the wounded. I could not undertake the responsibility of giving orders or taking measures. I fear delay may have been injurious in some instances, but this is not my house. You were absent, my dear Miss Kildar. What could I do? Were no refreshments sent? asked Shirley, while her countenance, hitherto so clear, propitious, and quiet, even while she was raiding the milk fetchers, suddenly turned dark and warm. I think not, my dear. And nothing for the wounded? No linen, no wine, no bedding? I think not. I cannot tell what Mrs. Gill did, but it seemed impossible to me, at the moment, to venture to dispose of your property by sending supplies to soldiers. Provisions for a company of soldiers sounds formidable. How many there are I did not ask, but I could not think of allowing them to pillage the house, as it were. I intended to do what was right, yet I did not see the case quite clearly I own. It lies in a nutshell, notwithstanding. These soldiers have risked their lives in defense of my property. I suppose they have a right to my gratitude. The wounded are our fellow creatures. I suppose we should aid them. Mrs. Gill! You are aware, she began with a trembling voice, and yet the most conscientious anxiety to avoid exaggeration in what she was about to say, that a body of rioters has attacked Mr. Moore's mill tonight. We heard the firing and confusion very plainly here. We none of us slept. It was a sad night. She turned and called in a voice more clear than soft. It rang through the thick oak of the hall and the kitchen doors more effectually than a bell summons. Mrs. Gill, who was deep in bread-making, came with hands and apron and culinary case, not having dared to stop to rub the dough from the one or to shake the flour from the other. Her mistress had never called a servant in that voice save once before, and that was when she had seen from the window Tartar in full tug with two carrier's dogs. Nor had she waited for the said John's coming, but had walked out into the lane bonnetless, and after informing the carriers that she held them far less of men than the three brutes whirling and worrying the dust before her, had put her hands around the thick neck of the largest of curs and given her whole strength to the essay of choking it from Tartar's torn and bleeding eye. Five or six men were presently on the spot to help her, but she never thanked one of them. Just above and below which organ the ventral fangs were inserted, each of them matched for him in size, if not in courage, and their master standing by encouraging their animals while hers was unbefriended. Then indeed she had summoned John as if the day of judgment were at hand. They might have come before if their will had been any good, she said. She had not a word for anybody during the rest of the day, but sat near the hall fire till evening watching and tending Tartar, who lay all gory, stiff, and swelled on a mat at her feet. She wept furtively over him sometimes, and murmured the softest words of pity and endearment, in tones whose music the old, scarred, canine warrior acknowledged by licking her hand or her sandal alternately with his own red wounds. As to John, his lady turned a cold shoulder on him for a week afterwards. Mrs. Gill, remembering this little episode, came all of a tremble, as she said herself. In a firm, brief voice, Miss Kildar proceeded to put questions and give orders. That at such a time, Fieldhead should have evinced the inhospitality of a miser's hovel stung her haughty spirit to the quick, and the revolt of its pride was seen in the heaving of her heart, stirred stormily under the lace and silk which veiled it. How long is it since that message came from the mill? Not an hour yet, ma'am, answered the housekeeper soothingly. 
Not an hour. Let the contents of the larder and the wine cellar be brought up, put into the hay carts, and driven down to the hollow. If there does not happen to be much bread or much meat in the house, go to the butcher and baker and desire them to send what they have, but I will see for myself. You might almost as well have said not a day. They will have applied elsewhere by this time. Send a man instantly down to tell them that everything this house contains is at Mr. Moore's, Mr. Halstone's, and the soldier's service. Do that first. While the order was being executed, Shirley moved away from her friends and stood at the hall window, silent, unapproachable. When Mrs. Gill came back, she turned. The purple flush which painful excitement kindles on a pale cheek glowed on hers. The spark which displeasure lights in a dark eye fired her glance. She moved off. The truth is, Shirley will blame herself more than you before the day is over. By dint of a few more gentle assurances and persuasions, Miss Helston contrived to soothe the agitated lady. Having accompanied her to her apartment and promised to rejoin her there when things were settled, Caroline left her to see, as she said, if she could be useful. She presently found that she could be very useful, for the retinue of servants at Fieldhead was by no means numerous, and just now their mistress found plenty of occasion for all the hands at her command, and for her own also. The delicate good nature and dexterous activity which Caroline brought to the aid of the housekeeper and maids, all somewhat scared by their lady's unwanted mood, did a world of good at once. It helped the assistants and appeased the directress. A chance glance and smile from Caroline moved Shirley to an answering smile directly. The former was carrying a heavy basket up the cellar stairs. "'This is a shame!' cried Shirley, running to her. "'It will strain your arm!' She took it from her, and herself bore it out into the yard. The cloud of temper was dispelled when she came back. The flash in her eye was melted. The shade on her forehead vanished. She resumed her usual cheerful and cordial manner to those about her, tempering her revived spirits with a little of the softness of shame at her previous unjust anger. She was still superintending the lading of the cart when a gentleman entered the yard and approached her ere she was aware of his presence. "'All will be right soon. She will get over it in an hour,' whispered Caroline to Mrs. Pryor. "'Go upstairs, dear madam,' she added affectionately, "'and try to be as calm and easy as you can.' "'I hope I see Miss Keeldar well this morning.' he said, examining with rather significant scrutiny her still-blushed face. She gave him a look and then again bent to her employment without reply. A pleasant enough smile played on her lips, but she hid it. The gentleman repeated his salutation, stooping, that it might reach her ear with more facility. Well enough if she be good enough, was the answer. And so is Mr. Moore too, I dare say. To speak truth, I am not anxious about him. Some slight mischance would be only his just due. His conduct has been, we will say strange just now, till we have time to characterize it by a more exact epithet. Meantime, may I ask what brings him here? Mr. Hillstone and I have just received your message that everything at Fieldhead was at our service. We judged, by the unlimited wording of the gracious intimation, that you would be giving yourself too much trouble. I perceive our conjecture was correct. We are not a regiment, remember, only about half a dozen soldiers and as many civilians. Allow me to retrench something from these two abundant supplies. Miss Kildar blushed while she laughed at her own over-eager generosity and most disproportionate calculations. Moore laughed too, very quietly though, and as quietly he ordered basket after basket to be taken from the cart and remanded vessel after vessel to the cellar. The rector must hear this, he said. He will make a good story of it. What an excellent army contractor Miss Kildar would have been. Again he laughed, adding, It is precisely as I conjectured. You ought to be thankful, said Shirley, and not mock me. What could I do? How could I gauge your appetites or number your band? For aught I knew, there might have been fifty of you at least to victual. You told me nothing, and then an application to provision soldiers naturally suggests large ideas. It appears so, remarked Moore, leveling another of his keen, quiet glances at the discomfited Shirley. Now, he continued, addressing the carter, I think you may take what remains to the hollow. Your load will be somewhat lighter than the one Miss Keeldar destined you to carry. As the vehicle rumbled out of the yard, Shirley, rallying her spirits, demanded what had become of the wounded. For my part, it was of your victims I was thinking when I inquired after the wounded. What damage have your opponents sustained? One of the rioters, or victims as you call them, was killed, and six were hurt. What have you done with them? What you will perfectly approve. Medical aid was procured immediately, and as soon as we can get a couple of covered wagons and clean straw, they will be removed to Stilbro. Straw? You must have beds and bedding. I will send my wagon directly, properly furnished, and Mr. York, I am sure, will send his. You guessed correctly. He has volunteered already. There was not a single man hurt on our side, was the answer. You were hurt yourself on the temples, interposed a quick, low voice, that of Caroline, who, having withdrawn within the shade of the door and behind the large person of Mrs. Gill, had till now escaped Moore's notice. 
when she spoke, his eyes searched the obscurity of her retreat. And Mrs. York, who, like you, seems disposed to regard the rioters as martyrs, and me, and especially Mr. Hellstone, as murderers. Are you much hurt? she inquired, as you might scratch your finger with a needle and so on. Lift your hair and let us see. He took his hat off and did as he was bid, disclosing only a narrow slip of court plaster. Caroline indicated by a slight movement of the head that she was satisfied and disappeared within the clear obscure of the interior. How did she know I was hurt? asked Moore. By rumor, no doubt, but it is too good in her to trouble herself about you. That very plain old maid sent in a stock of lint and linen, something in the proportion of another lady's allowance of beef and wine. That will do. Where is your sister? Well cared for. I had her securely domiciled with Miss Mann. Is at this moment, I believe, most assiduously engaged in fitting it up with feather beds, pillows, bolsters, blankets, etc. The victims lack no attentions, I promise you. Mr. Hall, your favorite parson, has been with them ever since six o'clock, extorting them, praying with them, and even waiting on them like any nurse. And Caroline's good friend, Miss Ainley, this very morning the two set out for Wormwood, Wales, a noted watering place, and will stay there some weeks. So Mr. Hellstone domiciled me at the rectory. Mighty clever, you gentlemen think you are. I make you heartily welcome to the idea, and hope its savor, as you chew the cut of reflection upon it, gives you pleasure. Acute and astute, why are you not also omniscient? How is it that events transpire under your very noses of which you have no suspicion? It should be so, otherwise the exquisite gratification of outmaneuvering you would be unknown. Ah, friend, you may search my countenance, but you cannot read it. More indeed, looked as if he could not. You think me a dangerous specimen of my sex, don't you now? A peculiar one, at least. But Caroline, is she peculiar? In her way, yes. Her way? What is her way? You know her as well as I do. And knowing her, I assert that she is neither eccentric nor difficult of control, is she? That depends. However, there is nothing masculine about her. Why lay so much emphasis on her? Do you consider her a contrast in that respect to yourself? You do, no doubt. But that does not signify. Caroline is neither masculine nor of what they call the spirited order of women. I have seen her flash out. So have I, but not with manly fire. It was a short, vivid, trembling glow that shot up, shone, vanished, and left her scared at her own daring. You describe others besides Caroline. The point I wish to establish is that Miss Hellstone, though gentle, tractable, and candid enough, is still perfectly capable of defying even Mr. Moore's penetration. What have you and she been doing? asked Moore suddenly. Have you had any breakfast? What is your mutual mystery? If you are hungry, Mrs. Gill will give you something to eat here. Step into the oak parlor and ring the bell. You'll be served as if at an inn. Or, if you like better, go back to the hollow. The alternative is not open to me. I must go back. Good morning. The first leisure I have, I will see you again. Okay, things are getting even more spicy. So, most of what happened in these chapters um, are kind of commonplace, let's say. Um, we have Shirley and Caroline kind of doing... Shirley and Caroline things. Um, and then we have this not exacting per se, but kind of thinking more along the lines of something is going on. There's trouble brewing. Like it's bad. It's not a good thing. And Shirley is more like, let's wait it out and see what happens. Um, so they end up having this like crazy standoff sort of situation at the mill. And of course, Robert and his kind of team, I guess, are the victors. Uh, they are more prepared than the opponent kind of suspected. So, of course, they had the upper hand. Um, ended up doing fine. Caroline is properly traumatized, as I think any of us would be. Shirley doesn't seem to be as concerned, uh, perhaps, but definitely still kind of taking it all in, just maybe taking it a little more in stride than Caroline is. And we see them both kind of stepping out of their comfort zones a little bit. Uh, Shirley, I think maybe not so much, but Caroline definitely going like full, full send and just kind of hoping for the best, really. And 
I think it's interesting to see that Whitsuntide like festival sort of thing uh, where they go to the church and kind of perform and have a pseudo parade sort of situation. And they are met with a counterforce, I guess you could say, um, of people who are kind of more or less protesting um, and they are kind of pushed back and everyone continues on their like little march or whatever. They have this kind of festival after their parade and things are clearly being planned between the different men um, and the women are kind of left out of it like usual. (laughs) Um, But we see uh, Shirley being pretty perceptive of everything that's going on. Caroline being a little bit more like Caroline has a lot of potential. She has so much potential to be Shirley, you know, like you can see it. You can see that under the right circumstances and kind of fostered in a similar way, Caroline could be Shirley pretty easily. Um, But they are different. And I think they are perhaps like two sides of the same coin. Um, Like (laughs) one is the one that is considered like the better one. And one is the one that could be the other side but it's not like they're back to back. They're so close to being the same person, but they just aren't. Um, But now we see Shirley kind of poking the bear a little bit and being like, it's a shame that men are so astute and so good at planning ahead, but they don't see what's happening right under their noses. And Robert's not stupid. He, he hears what she's saying and he's like, wait a minute, what are you and Caroline up to? And Shirley's just like, don't worry about it. Do you need breakfast? Like, trying to be all cool and casual. And I think, I think I have, I have yet to discern what her intent or expected outcome is from this. I'm not sure if she like wants Robert to figure it out or if she just wants Robert to see her and Caroline in a more like respectable light. I'm not quite sure what her motive is, but I think it's very interesting that that's how we leave out this episode is with Shirley kind of tempting tempting Robert into maybe being a little bit more cautious or a little bit more astute and him not really knowing that's what's happening. So I'm very curious to see where things go from here. I'm very eager to see how things unfold, uh, when there will be another uprising, if there's another uprising, uh, what Shirley is going to do to maybe prevent an uprising. There's a lot of balls in the court right now, and I'm curious to kind of see where they all end up. for listening. This has been chapters 16 through 20 of Shirley by Charlotte Bronte. Stay tuned for Monday's episode, which looks at chapters 21 through 24.